Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined as ever by Mr. Ben Mitchell. Ben, hello. Yeah, yeah. How are you? Good, good, good. Chilling out. Maxing. Relaxing or cool. <laughs> I'm contemplating maybe shooting some... Oh, right, never mind. Yes, everything is well. Excellent. It is the most relaxing time of year, obviously. Being the end of the year, there's no rushing around to do or any of that kind of stuff. For me it is. I'll do all my shopping in one go. Hopefully everyone I know loves Russell Brand and the concept of revolution and heavily discounted hardback books. <laughs> yeah, somebody's heading down the works. How about yourself? Oh, I'm, I'm all right. Are you feeling the festive cheer? I am. Yes, I am. I'm feeling the, uh, the, the Christmas. Hear it in your voice. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think what you can hear in my voice is probably laryngitis. But Qatar. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, because as, as soon as the temperature dips below... 20 degrees, you know, nice stable temperature. My immune system shrivels up and I become ill as ever. But I'm sure there's some animation uh, things that we could probably talk about, Ben. You know, do we have to? Well, we don't have to do all the talking. Weren't we just doing this a couple of months ago? <laughs> <clears throat> Who do we have on this episode of the Squiggly Podcast? In which case, let's. Uh, Let's, let's snap into it. We've got the first part of a two-part interview with Mr. Glenn Keane, a name I'm sure everybody knows. A Disney legend, animator extraordinaire, share his wit and wisdom with us all. We've also got an interview with stop-motion animator Pez, who's recently completed his new short film, Submarine Sandwich. And we catch up with our first ever guest on the Squiggly Podcast, Mr. Peter Lord. He's back for more, um, reminiscing on Ardman's past, present and future. How you reminisce in the future, I don't know, but we'll find out. Well, a fantastic lineup as always. Let's get started, shall we? So, before we get to the good stuff, let's us talk amongst ourselves. Because I'm sure everyone loves that part of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the vegetables you have to eat before you get your pudding. What uh, What's happening in the, in the animation world? that we can uh, discuss and debate. Well, since the last podcast, the uh, long list, the very long list of the uh, Oscar hopefuls has been announced. The Best Animated Feature and the Best Animated Short Film Oscars. And we've had a little poll on Squiggly to see what the Squiggly readership thought about that, Ben. Oh, my. Yes, to see who they wish to win. Um, so I'm going to read out the names and I'll... Uh, well, actually, I'll read out the names in order, in reverse order of... Um, uh, the squiggly uh, readership preferred uh, winners. Okay, then. Yeah, so uh, drum roll, please. Right down at the bottom, uh, you've got The Hero of Colour City. I think that's the film about the crayons. <laughs> Talking crayons there. Uh, Jack and the Cuckoo Clock Hearts, again at 0%. Henry and Me, I think that's a baseball film, at 0%. Minuscule, The Valley of the Lost Ants. Mr. Peabody and Sherman, Penguins of Madagascar. The Pirate Fairy, Planes Fire and Rescue, Rio 2, Giovanni's Island, Cheating, The Legend of Oz, Dorothy's Return, The Tale of Princess Kaguga, butchered that, <laughs> How to Train Your Dragon 2, Big Hero 6, Rocks in My Pocket, The Box Trolls, The Book of Life, in second place, The Lego Movie, and right at the very top of the list, where the squiggly readers want to take away the Oscar, Song of the Sea, with 30% of the vote. How many people would have gotten to see that one? I don't know. It's, it's 
recently premiering, isn't it? I guess it's been at festivals, hasn't it? So I haven't been fortunate enough, I dare say. I, I may have to wait until the wide release early in the new year. But certainly, of that list, it looks like one of the, the, uh, the more interesting ones. It's interesting how some of the ones at the bottom that haven't really gotten any votes and reasonably in a sense where does anyone see these yes like they're 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 kind of no one sort of knows of them at all until they're kind of long-listed for an oscar yeah good to see though that um stuff like of our readership certainly um stuff like cartoon saloon and um and rocks in my pockets and uh, uh stuff like that is is above you know some of the big mainstream stuff like big hero six and how to Train Your Dragon. I mean, I, I enjoyed Mr. Peabody and Sherman. I mean, it's, I, don't, I don't, I don't mind admitting that. Um, it, but it, but it was extremely mainstream. You know, it did look like it was uh, DreamWorks taking their their new acquisition. You know, the 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 Peabody and Sherman franchise out for a walk. And when I heard that they were going to turn it into a TV series, I don't know how far they've got along with that. It made perfect sense. It was like, all right, sure. I was so disappointed when because uh, I didn't watch the original show to be honest. But, of course, you become aware of things through other pop culture, and I was so gutted to find that at no point does he actually say, quiet, you. <laughs> I, could, I could tell, I could hear the, the Simpsons reference coming galloping over the horizon there, Ben. I may actually be strong-armed into to chatting a bit about the Simpsons later on in this podcast. I've been holding off for a while, but we'll see which way the wind blows, shall we? <laughs> it's always blowing in the direction of Springfield on this podcast, I'll tell you that. I've been trying very hard to abstain because, frankly, the subject has has depressed me for the last little while. But, uh, well, we'll we'll get to it later on. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting that the Wizard of Oz film, uh, Dorothy's Return, has a very fascinating production history, shall we say. Hmm. That uh, I guess it must have been Cartoon Brew. or I did a bit. Uh, yes, I remember it was Cartoon Brew. Uh, and you do that thing sometimes where you frog hop from article to article and uh, ended up on this thing about Legends of Oz and then ended up on this. Um, it's a discussion board of like investors in the film trying to get a handle on what exactly is going on in the film. It's absolutely riveting. Yeah. If you're interested by that kind of thing. I think the original article was um, talking about how the producers or the director or someone sort of big in that film feels like the industry has conspired against its success. Now, you can I haven't seen the film, but you can watch the trailer, and I think that the trailer might be a sort of measure of the, the quality when compared to, obviously, the likes of Frozen and um, that lot. Maybe it isn't a conspiracy. Yeah. You know, but fascinating all the same. How uh, It's kind of Wolf of Wall Street-ish, actually. Yeah. Did you see, did you see that one? Uh, when the, yeah. The, the culture of getting people to invest... And getting people excited about a project. I can sort of picture a lot of people in the Legends of Oz camp doing that Matthew McConaughey chest thump thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the Legends of Oz, Dorothy's Return. Have you seen that film? I've not seen that film, no. This is um, the the quote on the DVD box for Legends of Oz. And it's, it's short, but it's sweet. <clears throat> this year's Frozen. Ooh, okay. I kind of feel like if, if someone... I mean, I guess someone must have actually written that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't actually read the... K-J-D-Z-C-O-O-L-I-T is, is the 
publication it's ascribed to. Right. Sometimes a quote about a film, even if it's flattering, you might not want to actually use. There's a film I've, I have called Firecracker. It's a live action film and it's it's a fairly patchy indie film, but it tries. But the quote on the front is, the kind of film David Lynch wishes he could still make. Ooh. Which is not only sh- it is quite farcically inaccurate. <laughs> and I think, like, if you made that film and you had... I Probably the director didn't have any control of that quote going on the box. Yeah. It's probably a distributor decision. But if I'm the director and I saw that quote on my film, I'd be f***ing pissed off. Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> he, he clearly was inspired by David Lynch. And then he, he sees his film and it's, like, kind of saying, Hey, David, <laughs> guess I've taken up the flame. See you on the other side. I think this year's Frozen is actually Frozen. The film is still yeah. doing incredibly well. There's no stopping it. You hear about like riots going on in Poundland because, you know, and Frozen dolls are now outselling um, Barbie dolls. You know, and they've, they've recently announced that the Frozen Fever is going to screen as a as an opening film with uh, as an opening short film rather with the Cinderella live action uh, Disney film that's coming out soon. Um, so Frozen still has a tight grip on, uh, on 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 people's affections, and I'm I'm pretty sure. I mean, if the Lego Movie wasn't in, uh, in on this uh, you know Academy list, then they'd probably just give it to Frozen again. Is that Frozen? Was that last year? Oh, we'll have to pick something else then. Yeah, maybe that's the case. Maybe. But to the animation connoisseur, as we are, then you know, there's a there's a whole heap of fantastic films there. I mean, which one got your vote? I'm not even... Well, I have a few sort of takes on it. I think that it would be lovely if something like Rocks in My Pockets won because that would really kind of subvert things. Mm-hmm. Or cheating, even. I think it would really sort of redefine exactly, and for the better, what this kind of thing is all about. But I don't think they're very fond of that kind of change. I don't think they would embrace it. So, realistically speaking... Of that lot, I probably would say the Lego movie. Yeah. That was the one that sort of hit all the sweet spots for me. Yeah. Again, I haven't seen Song of the Sea or The Book of Life, but of the ones I've seen, yeah, that was the one I kind of enjoyed the most. It's a fantastic film. You know, I did I did really enjoy the Lego movie, and it would be nice to see uh, Chris Miller and uh, Phil Lord take something you can't create a film like the Lego movie or like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs without understanding cinema, without understanding comedy. And I think that, you know, that deserves it. Uh, but the one that I voted for was uh, The Box Trolls. A fantastic, an amazing step up for, from a company which you think couldn't step up. An amazing step up in, um, you know, technical uh, and kind of visual uh just extravagance. Absolutely wonderful film. I love The Box Trolls. It stays true to itself. And it doesn't pander visually. It's very grim. Even something like Paranorman, which had the zombies and stuff like that, it was it was executed in quite an accessible, family-friendly way. But some of the stuff with... Uh, well, the, the way that uh, Ben Kingsley's character... Um, Snatch it. Yeah, how his story resolves, shall we say. I shan't spoil it for those who haven't seen it. That's quite horrendous. <laughs> Gloriously so. Yeah. And uh, you wouldn't get that in many other kids' films. 
And I've actually seen, we, we talked about this around the time it came out, some of the criticisms were that it was, um, I guess, ugly, like sort of unpleasant for the sake of being unpleasant in certain respects. And I just think that people need to kind of lighten the f*** up. Yeah. Because why can't that be a good thing, you know? So much of the, some of the best stuff ever made, like in culture, just didn't give a crap about coddling its audience. It's when you challenge your audience, especially a younger audience, that I think they, they get more out of it. Absolutely. Certainly the films that affected me more as a kid were the ones that, you know, grossed me out or maybe gave me nightmares or, you know, it affected me in some way. Mm-hmm. And that can be visual, it can be in terms of storytelling. Which isn't to say that Paranorman isn't a good film. I thought it was very satisfying and very funny. But this one, I think... And it, it, it didn't try and keep with a kind of Leica brand. It, it became its uh, box trolls package in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just because there, there weren't enough kind of dad jokes snuck in there or... You know, because just because it wasn't Shrek doesn't mean uh, it's it's not something that's going to be sort of culturally nourishing for the younger audiences. Can we uh, can we chat a little about some upcoming films? On that note, why not this new George Lucas film? I have a question about it. Yeah. Well, it's not a question so much as a noise. Uh, <laughs> it's basically, huh? <laughs> First of all, where the hell did it come from? Yeah. And I've watched the trailer at least twice. What the hell is it about? Oof, uh, <laughs> I don't have a clue. Uh, I can't answer either question, I'm afraid, Ben. I mean, you know, I'm sure that people said the same things about Star Wars when that came out, and that did quite well. An unusual story, a, 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 an epic, shall we say, in in many respects. And, and this this film looks to be something that... Uh, is unusual. Uh, it looks epic. It does seem to be everything that I would never want to see in a film ever in my life, ever. But saying that, I don't want to turn into one of the parents that discount Paranorman because or, or Box Trolls because they don't like the look of it. Maybe the kids will love it. I don't know. Maybe George Lucas is the guy who can speak to children on their level and, and, and knows exactly what they want. But he certainly doesn't know what a 30-year-old man wants from a film. <laughs> yeah, well, that is that is reasonable enough, I suppose. I, it just feels very unfiltered. It feels very kind of... Um, it doesn't feel so much a fantasy adventure as just kind of nonsensical. You know, I'm not really the person to go to bat for Star Wars. I could see at the time people probably are finding it, you know... Um, Having issue with it, having having some bones of contention about it being different, but there was something about the scale of it that I think made people sit up and pay attention. Similarly, something like uh, you know Ghostbusters or um, Indiana Jones, spectacle, action, adventure, and all of that kind of all of those big mainstays of, of you know box office successful cinema. I think would have been quite present in any marketing materials in the lead-up to the original Star Wars. Yeah. This, A, it sort of came out of nowhere. There's nothing about it that seems to be pushing any boundaries or doing anything better than other films that have dealt with fairy tale subject matter, of which there have been quite a lot of late. It, it seemed like epic, didn't it? Yeah. It looked like epic. It looked, well, 
to to the kind of untrained eye, I mean, it, it just seemed like, well, hang on, wasn't this out a year and a half ago? Was it, you know? Yeah. An interesting point that um, Bill Plimpton made recently, um, we were chatting about the nature of independent animation for a separate project I'm working on, and he says, you know, technically, by my definition of independent animation, George Lucas is an independent filmmaker. Yeah. Because he, he can just make a f- any film he wants. And he doesn't need a studio technically. He, you know, he has his own. He can finance them all himself, and that's basically what Bill Plimpton does with his films. Of course, he didn't make Star Wars, so the, there aren't quite as many finances there. But with Bill Plimpton, necessity is very much a sort of mother of invention. Mm-hmm. He takes all the economic concessions with his film and uses them to benefit the story. And I wonder, you know, if you have so much money to throw around or just at a project and you can spend it on just the look of it and on the kind of indulging as many kind of fantastical ideas as possible, maybe it becomes a case of too much going on at once or not enough focus. Yeah. This film may turn out just to have a crappily edited trailer. It may may be beloved by all. Who knows? Mm -hmm. It just generally seems like, because I've never been a fan of George Lucas... Uh, as a filmmaker, but by that token, I also don't share the vehement opposition to his filmmaking spirit that a lot of people who were fans of his and have turned on him seem to maintain. So I, I have no sort of strong feelings about him either way. I certainly don't feel as betrayed or disappointed by the work he has done in his sort of later years. People kind of invest in somebody like George Lucas, don't they, and, and think that He's going to create something amazing for them, and you know to take it so personally. At the end of the day, it's it's not everything's for you. I mean, the news that um, Toy Story Four uh, is is on the cards now, and John Lasseter is going to direct it, really took uh, people a by surprise, and b people were quite offended by it. People believed that they actually own the Toy Story franchise because they like it, and are adamant that. A fourth story will completely ruin the series. I mean, yes, it was a very, it's a very complete series. It's a very kind of well-rounded off, well-put-together film. But for people to automatically like go, nope, Toy Story four, don't like it. Nope, it's gonna be, ru- it's going to be rubbish. That's that statement there hmm. is, it's a pretty bold one considering that the Toy Story franchise has continued. There's been short films. There's been little snippets. The the toys still have life in them, and they're still voiced by the same people. And to say that it's going to be rubbish when they have yet to make a bad Toy Story film, feature film, is quite a statement for me. And it just goes to prove that people claim ownership of things that they like. It may be a mix of not wanting something that they hold dear to be sort of sullied, and a keen awareness that the part four of any film franchise that started off strong generally tends to stink on ice. With, you know, the Pixar team and everyone like that, they don't really... I was going to say they don't really tend to coast, but then, you know, think of cars and planes and trains and automobiles and all those other <laughs> iterations of that particular franchise. Yeah. You know, that that's got pretty lazy pretty quickly. No disrespect to... The lovely Lois Lane, who appeared on this very podcast around the time of Plane's release, but uh, I like how you refer to her as Lois Lane. <laughs> that's not a real name. 
<laughs> they, their track record isn't impeccable. I liked Toy Story as a kid, but I don't really feel strongly about... I did like the film as a kid, but I, I think some people... It really got under their skin, you know. Yeah, and and you know, I know people who are very very successful animators now who cite Toy Story One as being the reason. Oh wow! In England, it tends to usually be like Wallace and Gromit. Yeah, uh, as like the thing. For someone like me, it's stuff like you know, it's kind of a hybrid of like Ren and Stimpy and like Calvin and Hobbes and and things like that. A little sort of left of of kind of mainstream cinema culture mm-hmm. but i know a few people who have said oh yeah toys because it was a big deal at the time the whole film done in computer animation and you know they didn't they obviously anyone who remembers they uh they were not subtle about that in the marketing yeah <laughs> they they chose to completely use that angle unfortunately there was a good story with substance behind it yeah so it's that's not the only reason it's it's remembered and beloved Imagine what shape cinema would be in, animated cinema would be in, if it was a terrible star and it it, it, it bombed. It would have probably taken a knock. It would have gotten there eventually. There are some kind of interesting what ifs about like, um, like the original Toy Story premise. Yes. How that would. I mean, people say that it was a lot darker, and there's some evidence of the original draft out there in the world. But I rewatched Toy Story one not that long ago, and and rewatching it on a certain level. It is a little dark in terms of just the power games of it. Like, the original, I guess, premise was that uh, Woody was a little yeah. and a little more underhanded. Yeah. And then in the final version, he's much more of a sympathetic character. But all the other toys are kind of <laughs> shitty. Yeah. Watching it again, Mr. Potato Head's a <laughs> c- <laughs> But it's a beautifully observed idiosyncratic insecure lick spittle because he's all about woody yeah when woody's the head guy but as soon as this new guy comes in he's so delighted that the guy that he secretly resented all these years finally being usurped and really he just wants to be the head guy yeah but because he knows he'll never be like he takes such glee in the head guy having to eat crow and uh (laughs) What a beautifully observed analogy for... I mean, how many people like that do we meet in our lives? <laughs> that you just see, they, they're hangers-on. Yeah. The people who kind of, like, attach themselves to people they perceivably admire, but really they f***ing hate them. Mm-hmm. They want to take that throne. That I don't think I appreciated as much as a kid, but, yes, yeah, sort of in terms of social commentary and in terms of ego, beautiful film. Yeah. That's, that's the step up, isn't it? I mean, that, that's the difference between having a film with a sidekick in it and having a film with perhaps a little more to it, a little substance, a little something that can be uh, enjoyed on many levels years later. And I will say it's probably my only criticism of Toy Story 2 and 3 is that that doesn't carry over into it. And I think it, even in Toy Story 2, like Mr. Potato Head, who's become a little more sympathetic refers to being shittier mm-hmm. and now he's a nice guy but he's kind of in bad and they, they kind of they softened him up and in the third one he's one of like the main sort of hero characters yeah so, i mean i love that whole th- thing with him what is it it's like a taco yeah it's a- with like his <laughs> eyes stuff <laughs> that's yeah. great <laughs> superb animation there absolutely yeah. superb 
You know, we're speaking of uh, things that people hold dear and 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 claim as as, uh, as 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 cultural sort of gemstones in their life that cannot be tarnished. There's a new Peanuts trailer which has been released, mm-hmm. which although it demonstrates that Blue Sky have managed to remain uh, somewhat faithful to the the line of uh, Schultz, the trailer with the music and things really kind of I found it a little jarring when you say the line of Schultz you mean like the bloodline or his actual line work his line work okay because I I think either would actually work in the sense of um how the franchise was kind of picked up by I think it's his kids isn't it that yes now or yeah yeah and it always felt like the original Peanuts had a harder edge to it uh, certainly at the start. Oh, the original strips were... were. <laughs> I mean, they're making a kids' film here, but the original strips, they weren't aimed towards adults, but they weren't aimed towards children. You know, I think I think this is perhaps a response to the, the kind of animated versions which were uh, formed quite a part of uh, people growing up in the 70s and 80s uh, childhoods. And in that respect, I thought that the, the tone and the music retained quite a bit of fidelity to those old animation specials. Oh, not the song, actually. Sorry. I, I, uh, are you talking about that, that awful pop song? I'm talking about that awful pop song right in the middle. Sorry. Okay, that I completely agree with. Was a, They always do it. They can't resist. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's like, we'll do so well. You were doing so well as well. We really believe in you. We really enjoyed it. And then you just stuck that shitty song in the middle of it. Yeah. Every trailer, every trailer. But the the original Peanuts teaser trailer, which just had the kind of old timey jazz piano, yes, that really felt like the old cartoons. You know? Yeah, spot on. Who was who was the guy who who did the old music? The older Ooh. Vince Guaraldi. Mm. He certainly did the Christmas one. It had that vibe about it, and hopefully that would carry through into the actual film. That being said, my my fondness is probably definitely more toward the the comic strips, but not even like as a kid, like as an adult, sort of dipping into them from time to time. Yeah, I think because the cartoons didn't represent the cynical undercurrent, they could be quite sad, or you know, there's the what I now consider the Arrested Development moment. The dun, 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 dun. <laughs> When he's walking around all mopey. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think I know what you mean. It's a very good show. Yes. Just watch the first three seasons. Right. Then just stop there. <laughs> right. There was no season four. <laughs> dun, 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 so do you think the adults will be voiced by celebrities or do you think they'll be voiced by backwards trumpets again? It better be the trumpets. Yes. If we can actually see and hear adults in, in the new movie, that would... Yeah. They'd have to keep that. That was iconic. Absolutely. What's wrong with all the grown-ups in this town? <laughs> Dad, stop playing your trumpet. I need advice. <laughs> it's stuck in my throat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, another trailer that was released. Uh, the new home trailer. What did you think to this? I was unmoved, I suppose, yeah. was the best word. Um, seemed quite minionsy. It did. Uh, and it all and at the same time quite inside outy. Everything is very much blob based at the moment. It seems I'm not completely retracting my optimism regarding Inside Out, but a friend of mine did point out that it's pretty much the exact same premise as Herman's Head. Yeah, 
They've announced that the, the, the voice actors as well for the, for the Inside Out, which I can't remember off the top of my head. So moving on. Well, I think they announced that quite a while ago. Yeah. Because they're, they're all quite sort of um, prominent. I think Bill Hader's in it and is it Amy Poehler is the main one. Oh, yeah. No, they announced the uh, the voices of the, the father and mother and, and things. All right. Yeah. So the extra news. So who are they? I've absolutely no idea. I mean, I'm Squiggly, your one-stop news source. <laughs> Let me just remember. <laughs> this isn't the sound of me typing. This is the sound of me thinking. Uh, oh, I think it might be Diane Lane and Kyle MacLachlan. Oh, really? So there yeah, you go. Interesting. They did show a clip in Annecy that involved the parents, and I wonder if they maybe they redubbed them. Maybe it might, it might it might have been a scratch track. I mean, if they're only just announcing it now, it seems odd that they wouldn't have rotted up at the time. Yeah, well, the pe- people who were there would uh, they have really kind of latched onto that? Well, I mean, they talked about the the voices for the emotion characters. Yeah. If it was Kyle MacLachlan, I'd be quite surprised that I didn't pick up on that. Mm. Maybe that's what they do. Maybe they kind of hold back on some of the casting and see if they can get you know big names and stuff. Yeah, spread it out. Especially with animation, you can do that. Relatively easy. Sure. You mentioned them, though. The the Minions, another trailer that has been released. Just one second. <laughs> That's by no means a review. It is exactly what, what you kind of expected, you know. Good. Yeah. <laughs> then people shan't be disappointed by the, the still here. They appear to have gone back in time. Good for them. <laughs> All riding a, a dinosaur. Yeah. Fair enough. Enjoy, uh, enjoy the minions, everybody. I'm sure you will. There's the other Pixar film, Disney Pixar film, The Good Dinosaur. Mm. Do you have high hopes for this one? I, I did. I, I figured it seemed it seemed interesting. When you look at the Pixar lineup and you see that they're doing like Finding Dory two, and then when we saw they were doing you know a, a Monsters University and Cars three and all that kind of stuff, and you, you you know you did think, oh hang on, they are just going for sequels. Fair enough, let them do it. You know, they're always enjoyable, etc. And to see that they're doing the inside out, the good dinosaur, and taking the risks that they used to take, it's heartening to see. It's good to see. And I really I was really looking forward to the good dinosaur. It seemed like one of the original kind of Pixar fire out concepts. You know, the idea that um, dinosaurs didn't go extinct, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it seemed extremely interesting. I was looking forward to it. It was a shame to hear that it was in so-called development hell. But uh, I think, is it Peter Son or somebody's taken over? So uh, we've got a new director. And it's out next year. So this time next year, we will have seen it. But we've seen nothing of it so far. We've seen a few backgrounds and a few bits and pieces. But uh, we've seen absolutely nothing. When you said Peter Son, yeah. did you mean Bob Peterson? Uh, no. Uh, Bob Peterson's been taken... Uh, uh, Peter Son's replaced him. So they replaced Peterson with Peter Son. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Kind of phonetically confusing. It is. <laughs> He's the guy that uh, voiced uh, Squishy in Monsters Uni. Oh, that guy? Yeah. And uh, he's the basis of, um, is it Russell from, from Up? Nice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, this, this good dinosaur, is, I suppose he's a more friendly variety of dinosaur than, say, the more carnivorous, scary Jurassic Park type dinosaurs. Yeah, I think he's a... Is he like the last dinosaur? No, I think the kid oh, okay. in the film is the first ever human that gets discovered. Does the dinosaur become the kid's friend <clears throat> and a whole lot more? I think it, uh, it, that's what happens. Beautiful. And the rest. <laughs> so that's the new film segment. 
So I, I grew weary. Of this. <laughs> There's one with a ghost in it. it looks yeah. Like. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Like you know, we'll talk about them when they come up. But yeah, big year for, for Pixar next year because they did nothing this year release wise. So so back to the Oscars. Best animated shorts have been uh, a similar poll to the poll that we created for the best animated feature. So let's see what the squiggly readership uh, thought of this. And this is a more interesting one for me because everybody voted on this. I mean, with the big long list of the feature films, the ones at the bottom, uh, cheating right the way down to the hero of Colour City, they're just alphabetical order of ones that nobody has voted for. Loads of people have voted for the others, but nobody has even considered these. Whereas these ones people have considered and we always get a better response for the short films than we do for the features when we put up articles such as this so from the bottom uh, me and my mouton by uh toril cove i've got a light box with her uh on the youtube channel which is very interesting uh, a fantastic film as well i saw it when they released it online for free for 48 hours uh, really enjoyable feast by patrick osborne a past uh, podcast guest uh, Footprints by Bill Plimpton. We've been stalking him for a while now. You'll see him on uh, podcasts and, and, and Lightbox and stuff. Uh, a Single Life by Joris Oppins. The Numberless by William Joyce and Brandon Oldenburg. Uh, past winners, I think they won for the Fantastic Flying Books of Morris Lesmore. That was it, yeah. The Fantastic Flying Books of Morris Lesmore. That the number is, is like an app or something that they've, you know, it's like a, a, a film for an app. Duets by Glenn Keane. Coda by Alan Holly, The Dam Keeper by Robert Kondo and Dice Tsumi, uh, past guests again, and The Bigger Picture by Daisy Jacobs is at the top of our list of 26% of the vote. There's a very fine line between uh, The Bigger Picture and The Dam Keeper. I think there's 1% in it, 25%, 26%, yes. Well, you um, missed out uh, Symphony Number no. 42. Oh, I'll splice it in. W- what have you got against poor old Reka Bushia? I just can't pronounce her name. I wanted you to do it. Oh, dear. <laughs> you know, with bands, the accent. Yes, Symphony Number no. 42 by Rekha Bushki. Um, I've got nothing against her, Ben. Good luck to everyone involved. Mm-hmm. What, have you, what have you put your name next to on that, Ben? What, what's your ticket riding on there? I really liked Coda. Yeah? By Alan Holly. Yeah, I thought that was, um, that was a cut above. I think that the others are all very, very good as well. Obviously, um, you know, Damkeeper, we talked to them last episode. Incredibly inspirational duo, Robert and Dice. Daisy Jacobs' film, very uh, unique approach to whether you'd call it stop motion or paint animation or pixelation, like it's sort of everything. Yeah. You know, and it's it does what the NFTS does best when it... Uh, doesn't I mean it doesn't redefine animation, but it does take it to a, a pretty interesting place. It's a wonderful story as well. It's also interesting seeing something like duets there and the number is next to each other, being that they were created for a digital platform. That shows the shape of this category and how it's uh, how it's ever changing uh, with, with regards to uh, what can be included and and. Uh, and how animation is kind of, uh, and, and how artistry in animation is kind of embracing different formats and things. So that's very interesting for me there. I think I, I agree with the second part. I wouldn't give the Oscars enough credit to actually embrace sort of changing trends in filmmaking mm-hmm. to that degree. I think that to be included in both of those cases, they've had to create films out of larger projects. 
Yeah. So it's it's the duet experience as a film that you're sitting watching on a screen is quite different to the actual intended experience as the interactive mobile device version of the film. Yeah. You can't replicate that, but I expect that it's being judged on how it succeeds as a short film taking away that and i expect it's the same with the numberlies mm-hmm. but yeah I, so the concern is perhaps like well what if people who don't quite get the context of a film like duet uh i mean i, I think realistically it should be appreciated just by the the sheer quality of the animation yeah so yes that's the uh oscar uh hopefuls on both of our articles it is kind of a public vote uh obviously it goes no way towards the final Oscar vote, but it is good to see what you guys think. So if you go on to squiggly.com, that's the website, uh, and type in Oscars or Academy Awards, uh, you'll find the articles and you can vote. It's a one-click vote and, uh, yeah, you can see how, how the films are doing. Very close there between the bigger picture and the dam keeper. So it'll be interesting to see which ones get on the actual shortlist and to see who wins. But amongst both lists, we may or may not... Uh, have uh, talked in depth about the winner. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Who indeed? Who knows? Well, on that mysterious note, shall we? Uh, shall we proceed with the meat of the podcast? Our, uh, our wonderful guest roster. Let's do that. So we were just chatting about duet, the Glen Keane. Post Disney project for Google ATAP. It's his first venture into uh, the world of interactive film. Not sure if interactive is quite the the word. Immersive maybe a better one in the sense of it's it's you you become a spectator of the film in a way that uh, you can't be just by sort of sitting and watching it on a screen. It's very much uh, making use of what phones are capable of in terms of determining or replicating. Uh, physical space. Uh, we had a little play with Duet at this year's Encounters Festival, at which Glenn Keane was an honoured guest, and he was absolutely fawned over. Never seen quite as much enthusiasm as as guests have certainly in the past. Uh, I know that John Creasefalusi constantly had a oh yeah a, a circle around him, a harem, if you will, of uh, <laughs> spectacularly photogenic young aspiring women animators that I have not seen before or since. Oh, and the, the, with their poor boyfriends who were never quite in the circle. <laughs> <laughs> They'd try and elbow their way in, but just wouldn't happen. Yeah. The uh, Glenn Keane fandom was uh, a little more balanced and a lot more sort of accommodating. He was very, very cool with everyone. He stayed for a very long time. He did drawings for everyone, um, you know, signed autographs, chatted with people. You know, he's retained this Disney... Uh, sensibility well retained i mean in a lot of respects he's responsible for the contemporary disney sensibility when you think of the the major iconic characters he's been responsible for you know the beast from beauty and the beast is a the, the mermaid beyond the the original golden era classics all the classics of our lifetime the pivotal characters are owed to his quality of uh animation and character yeah yeah just a, a, a legend absolutely you can see why people fawn over him so much yeah when people talk about disney uh it's often people often talk about the nine old men and if you're going to dis- if you're going to put that into a sort of a modern day context the nine old men for our generation were glenn Keane, 
Andreas Deja, Eric Goldberg. All of these... You've got six left. I've got six left. Oh, my God. No, anyway. So, Quickly. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, uh, 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 Billy Animator Fingers. Um, <laughs> Mr. Mr. McAnimator. Um, but, yeah, so so uh, all these kind of animators, which, which you only need to say the name, Glenn Keane, and people, their ears perk up. If you're going to find out about an animator... Or if you're going to watch an animation and think, oh my God, who did that? I guarantee that you'll do it with Nick Park. You'll probably do it with John Lasseter and you'll do it with Glenn Keane. And if people are going to know any names of animation, it's probably going to, they're probably going to be the big three. Besides like your Walt Disney's and, you know, all, all people that are, uh, are no longer with us. But they, those are the guys that everyone knows their name. And if they don't know the name, like you say, as soon as you say The Beast or The Little Mermaid or Pocahontas, People would be like, oh, right, yeah, sure. And they get it straight away, and all of a sudden, that's it. Fan. They're an instant fan because they know their the quality of their output of their work and stuff. And so you get this kind of uh, huge fandom, you know, very deserved fandom. And it's something that we've talked about in the past. Uh, the word celebrity, the word, the way the word celebrity is used nowadays, I mean, it should be used to sell, as, as a sort of way celebrating what they can do, what they achieve and what they create and stuff. So I think it is it is reasonable to call uh, Glenn Keane a big animation celebrity, as it is to call Nick Park one or John Lasseter or something, because of their output of work, and not a celebrity in the sense that you know they get pissed and end up on MTV shows. Yeah, you don't really see Nick Park stumbling out of a nightclub on the front page of Heat. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, and why would you? <laughs> the, the concept is farcical and and fanciful. <laughs> the very idea. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that the 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 animation lifestyle quite uh, quite overlaps with um, paparazzo harassment. Yeah, yeah. There's n- there's not as much glamour in it as they would probably uh, the readers would be craving. Hang on, I'm just going to do a little test. Ah, well, I spoke too soon. What? I typed in TMZ Matt Groening, and sure enough, he shows up. So you, if you're that famous. If you're that kind of celebrity, you can get onto TMZ. I'm not sure how many others I could think of that would that that overlap would apply to. Yeah, I expect not Glenn Key. No, absolutely not. I think that probably the only kind of um, levels of sort of journalistic harassment pretty much come from us, <laughs> <laughs> and we're very polite about it. Yes, you know, we're very uh, as I'm sure you'll see in our associated. Glenn Keane interviews that have been popping up on the site. We have a few written articles. We have the uh, the most recent uh, video interviews. It's uh, uh, fascinating stuff about uh, what he's been doing sort of post-Disney. And I think it's actually something we talked about in the very first episode of this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, which if you haven't listened to, subscribe on iTunes and catch up. There's nothing like a good podcast binge right kids <laughs> uh, where i think he had just left disney or had just announced leaving disney and you said you said i remember you saying you said let's pry into his life and here's the perfect opportunity ben mm-hmm. <laughs> this interview is the perfect it's all come full circle we get you in the end <laughs> I'm, I'm dreading if we ever get matt graining <laughs> <laughs> well that's it. maybe he'll finally give you that kiss <laughs> Have we told that story on the uh, 
No, I've, I've only done it to death on Facebook. I, I, I don't think I'd ever want to tell that story. because I, I think the squiggly audience deserves to know. I don't think either of us would. Because I good. remain to this day not sure whose side I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could put it to the public. Should we do the votes like we used to do? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I'll tell the story, but be prepared to cut it. <laughs> so... Um, it was Annecy 2000 and... It was Annecy. It was back in the day. <laughs> so when I was just a young... Anyway, um, it was Annecy a few years ago when Matt Groening was there. And obviously, as we were talking about the kind of... The, the celebrity animator, he was uh, surrounded by people pretty much non-stop. And he was walking in the, uh, in the, in the kind of foyer of the, the Bon Lou one day and I saw him on his own and I thought, ah, right, well, here's the opportunity. He's on his own. I don't wish to be part of a huge crowd I just want to ask him tell him that I appreciate his work and that I would like to uh, if possible get an autograph from him uh, so I approached him and, and as I approached him a few other people approached him mainly uh, ladies and uh, he was happily signing autographs for the ladies so I thought oh this is good I can uh, I can get an autograph here and um, he signed the first autograph and this lady went oh thank you very much I will now give you a French kiss and she kissed him on the cheek um, and he seemed very... It's not really a French kiss. But... No, no, I mean, you know, there was... Bit of a bait and switch there. <laughs> but, uh, and, and then, so I was there, and I kind of went, oh, 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 and sort of pushed my sort of sketchbook in his direction, and, uh, and he picked it up, looked at me, looked at the sketchbook, and passed it back to me. And so I looked at him and said, and by this time the crowd had got quite big around him, and said, what if I gave you a French kiss? <laughs> And then he snapped in his head and he went, I've got to go. Where's Silverman? He started pushing through the crowd to get out um, and left. So I ruined it for everyone. In hindsight, do you think that was the best thing to say? Well, I'd already asked for an autograph and he said no. So what more could I have said? One day, Steve. One day you'll get that kiss. Who's... I wasn't after the kiss, but you know... Um, but... I kind of feel that bit didn't need clarification. <laughs> I was being whimsical. Oh, right, okay, yeah. As is my puckish way. <laughs> so whose side are you on, Squiggly audience? Twitter, <laughs> at Squiggly. <laughs> Hate mail to Steve at squiggly.co.uk. <laughs> it, probably, it probably haunts him, that moment. <laughs> did that really happen? I, I did pucker up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, well. So back to uh, Duet and the excellent Glenn Keane. Duet is out now for Motorola X devices, which I do not have one of. Um, but uh, fear not, if you are like me and don't, uh, it's going to get a wider release, I believe, for more devices in the new year, iOS devices and Android devices. Uh, in the meantime, we have the first of a couple of chats with the legendary Glenn Keane himself, here he is talking about his life and times as a once-and-future Disney legend with our very own Katie Steed. So I'd like to talk about your influences, because I see you as someone that's really studied drawing from sort of an artistic place, from a historical place, from a um, theoretical and a technical place. And I wanted to know if that's something that you were told to do, something that's just your interest, your natural desire to learn more. Well, I, I was raised in a family where my dad's a cartoonist. Yeah was a cartoonist and um, I was amazed at how much he loved drawing as a kid I would watch him draw and he was never classically trained he had art books at home but he never went to school 
but he did incredibly beautiful watercolors. And there was a, an appreciation of artists at our, in our home, though dad was a famous cartoonist in America. But I read an article once on dad when he was like 18 and somebody interviewed him and he said, I'm not an artist, I'm a cartoonist. Right. And I thought, well, that's an interesting point of view to have. And then and I noticed that but when dad would talk to me, he'd say, Glenn, you're not a cartoonist, you're an artist. I wasn't sure what that meant, but in like fourth grade when I was, I guess, 10, eight, whatever, nine, he gave me a book of Fern Hogarth's Dynamic Anatomy. So I started to really learn figure and drawing and uh, I remember going to school on the bus and other kids looking at drawings I were doing and hey, Keen's drawing naked guys because I was, you know, studying anatomy and I realized, okay, so not everybody thinks like me. That's because I'm an artist. Mm. I want to be an artist. That's that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to become. So when I sent my portfolio to CalArts, it was to go into the School of Painting. And about a month later, I was found out I was accepted into the School of Film Graphics, uh, taught by Jules Engel. Didn't know Jules Engel, didn't know, even know what the term film graphics meant. This was in 1972. Mm. Yeah. But it was kind of a fancy way of saying cartoons or animation. But I wanted to be a painter. It's like, what happened? I called and I said, so there's a mistake. I want to, I want to be a painter. I want to get into the School of Art. I said, well, I'm sorry. This is the only way you're going to come here is if through this school of, of film graphics. I said, okay, well, can I take a second in painting? They said, yes. Okay. So I went there. And I'll never forget just walking into that animation room, A115 at mm. CalArts. And there's all these students at these desks with these discs flipping paper. I'd never seen anything like it. I didn't know what it was. And as I learned, though, and started to animate my first little bouncing ball, I couldn't help but put shading on it to make it feel like a dimensional thing. And seeing it move, it had weight and and just captured my imagination. Suddenly the paper surface was gone and I stepped into this world. And it just reminded me when I was a kid, I would do drawings, not so much to do with drawing, but to make the paper go away. And I would live in the world of like dinosaurs. It was more like a, a time machine in many ways. It, and Animation allowed that for me to step into it. But very quickly, I realized to really do the things that I was imagining doing was going to require me to draw better. Right. And I started studying anatomy in real earnest and found that it was helping me to turn a figure better in space. And I realized that like if Michelangelo Rodin, Degas was alive today, they would want to be animators. Agreed. <laughs> but they would take, they do something with it different than anybody is pushing now. I mean, whatever we've done now, they would have done something uniquely artistic and expressionist for them. So I, I keep trying to put as much of that classical drawing into everything I do. If I'm drawing the beast, I'm studying Rodin with Ariel. I mean, I absolutely loved Francois Boucher, his 
his drawing style, the, the Rococo style in France, was the forerunner to Freddie Moore at Disney. I mean, the, the French curves, that's all in everything they do. I realized all the roots of everything that I love at Disney was actually done from classical artists before. So that's how I've grown is, is through exposing myself to classical artists. Yeah. And I heard you say in an interview recently that animation, hand-drawn animation, is in the Byzantine era. So what do you think we have to do to move on to the Renaissance? And who do you think is going to be leading that charge? Well, first, I think you have to think of yourself differently. Well, we tend to believe the business world's view of our art form. But that's really putting the cart before the horse, something to tail wag the dog. This is an art form that we are the artists. We are the ones that are making it. Don't let somebody else define who you are and what you do and what is possible with this art form. It has to be in the, the mind of the artist. And I started really thinking about what would happen. And what would I be talking to you about if this was 500 years ago? I mean, we would talk about building cathedrals hmm. or sculpture, sculpture, or painting frescoes. But our cathedrals and frescoes and sculptures is this art form of animation making something move. No less of a classical art form than that. It's it's just so commercialized that we tend to forget that. So I really think it's about us first. We have to think differently. On Tangled, I remember we had done 40% of, of the animation in about nine months. We had two months left to do 60%. <laughs> and talking to the crew, I mentioned this. I said the same thing. 500 years ago, we'd be talking about sculptures and you know, architecture. But today, we are. this is our art form. We are born as artists today. And this is your important choice. Are you going to take a shortcut and just do something formulaic? Or are you going to take something really personal inside and put it out on the screen? When you have no time, you still, you are really being challenged. Don't take the shortcut. Do the thing that is really personal. Be vulnerable. Put yourself out there. That's, that's our art form. And at the end, you'll be amazed. None of you will be artists that you are today. You will be better. You'll be stronger. You have grown. And we got the animation done. And truly, the very best stuff was done in those two months. So I guess that's what I'm, I'm saying. It's that the point of view of who you are. And um, making choices on the kind of film. I have, I have ideas of movies that I want to see, I want to do. And there's a voice in my head that says, no way. There's a reason nobody's doing that. It's because no one's going to go see that. Like, nobody cares about that. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I do. And I'm, I'm a person. Maybe somebody else. I, I, I think that people are going to connect to uh, your art when you really put yourself out there and, and are personal. Mm. It has to be observed. It has to come from something that you've discovered in life. And then you're reflecting it back to the audience. They're seeing it through your eyes. So is that the future for Glen Keane? Short personal films? Personal, mm. yes. Individual and expressing something that I believe is beautiful and is emotional. I think that is the path that I want to go. I feel like duet, sort of the first fruit that fell from this tree. <laughs> and there's something uh, unique in the way of that, that storytelling that I want to keep 
pulling on that thread and see what comes next. There are several ideas I've got. And they could be long form or medium form or various different forms and formats. I mean, how they're presented, they can, can come out in different ways. So I'll try not to limit myself to that. It seems that when you're working in a studio environment, each studio is kind of like a planetary system that they work through. You think differently at every studio. It's like you breathe a different kind of oxygen or something. And the ideas at Pixar are feel like a house style. And they, the Disney feels like the mm. Disney house style. And they're wonderful, beautiful films and DreamWorks. And they, every one of them has got something. And it's, it's not spoken. It just is. Yeah. And I think sometimes you've got to step out of that atmosphere to to really find the thing that's very personal voice yourself and which is what I felt like I, I needed to do when I left uh, two years ago. So two years now. Yeah. And so since you left Disney and you've sort of inspired my generation very much with the animation and you sort of seem to have found yourself at the center of fan hysteria which must have really come to the fore when you resigned i would think so how do you sort of feel about being a celebrity animator um has it opened doors for you do you think yeah i mean i i think i'm still trying to open some doors now (laughs) so i don't know that all the doors are open but the doors that i am really finding open are there are people that um, are interested in hearing what I have to say. Like just talking to you, Katie, is really nice to have somebody asking me questions about what I think. So I, I find that really great value of having some notoriety that somebody's interested that I can actually share. I've always been that way. I've never been able to be um, to hold whatever it is that I'm learning inside. Even when in my early 20s, and I was at Disney, and I was just discovering animation. And I, I, I'd learned some simple truth that Ollie Johnston had said, like, every line relates to another line. No line stands by its own. Mm. It's always in relation to another line. And he told me, he said, now you're not going to understand this, but someday you will. And there was a day that I got it. Mm. It was like, if I draw a bottom part of a cheek, the top part of the cheek, they both need, it's like if you pick something up with two hands, you are supporting a form in the middle. It was like, oh, I got it. Just, you know, I got to go tell somebody. And I'd, I'd go grab somebody, look at this. And I'd, I'd show them. And I started um, doing lectures at, at Disney about things I was discovering with Tex Avery. And I mean, I didn't have any right to be putting myself out as an expert because I wasn't. I was just sharing what I was discovering. And I remember sometimes some of the other folks at the studio would say, um, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. What? You shouldn't be like telling everybody these things that you're learning and discovering. I said, well, why? He said, well, you're going to give away your secrets. Then everybody else is going to get like better than you and then you don't then what's going to happen? Mm. You should really kind of keep that under wraps. Just a word to the wise. And they'd walk out. If that's true, I don't want to live in that world. Maybe I'll just keep growing. And, you know, and it was a lot more fun to keep sharing 
fantastic. Well, you learn from from the best. Yeah, you know. they they were opening. Uh, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnson, Eric Larson mm. were naturally gifted teachers who lived to share at the end of their career. That's what they were all about: passing off the baton. Yeah. And that was, I guess I naturally just saw that as that's what you do as an artist. You pass it on to, to somebody else. And I still still do that. I mean, so to your question of that notoriety, that's the wonderful part about it is people are actually asking, so what do you have to say? You know, what, what, do, you, what do you think? And I get to tell them what I think. Yeah. So how would you describe your animation style? Because I've heard you say before that there's a sort of, you consider there's a scale from Milk Khan on the very um, technical to sort of Frank and Ollie on the very emotional side of the spectrum of animation. Where would you put yourself in that spectrum? And is there something that you say would say makes a Glen Keane sequence? I think I'm learning more about each of those guys, Frank, Milk, Ollie, and I'd have to say that they're all emotional. I think they each think very differently, though. And I know that I think differently than all four of them. They envision their animation differently. Like Milt would see it very, very clearly in his mind. And if you watched him draw, you could tell that he saw everything in his head and he was tracing it out as he drew practically. Is that the drawing or he saw the whole sequence? Well, he would work it out his thumbnails. Mm. And then when he figured out his thumbnails, it was architecturally designed in his mind, timing-wise, drawing-wise, everything was figured out. Ollie thought not so much in movement as in pictures. He'd say, you've got to think in terms of a picture that you leave with the audience that they'll never forget. They just, you have that short moment in time. What is the picture you're going to do? If you just had one drawing, what would it be? His animation was always a boiled down sauce with, that just got, it was like spaghetti sauce that got really strong into one clear pose and drawing. Milt's was about dynamic moving shapes. Uh, the poses were, were wonderful and strong. And Frank's was a very intellectual, kind, very psychological. Thousands of little busy lines feeling the form. It was, he could talk in depth about what was going on with the character, communicate that way. You could see it in his animation. Characters' movements are always rolling and turning in complex little arcs. And I have a thing that, I have a problem. <laughs> I don't see something clearly in my head. So when I was first animating, like Eric Larson would say, so Glenn, when you start, you you see an image clearly in your mind and you draw it. I said, well, I, here's the problem. I don't see it. Well, well sure you do. You, you do see it because you did the, the drawing. I said, well, no, I don't. You must. No, I don't. And we go back and forth. And, it's like, okay, I just don't see the draw the picture in my mind. And I realize, oh, well, animators are different. They they approach it very differently. I mean, recently Jenny Rim, my producer, and I were having dinner with Ed Catmull. And Ed was talking about a meditation that he was learning from this guy who was teaching him, and the guy was telling him to imagine a sphere and I think it was like a sphere in the inside. And he was having a problem. He realized he can't imagine a sphere. He can mathematically describe a sphere, but he couldn't imagine the picture of a sphere. And, you know, he said, he looked at me and thought, but I guess you wouldn't have that problem. Mm. I said, that's exactly, <laughs> I have that. 
we both looked at each other. Whoa, there's somebody else crazy like <laughs> like me. But I think that unique thing also kind of brings with it a positive aspect. Uh, if it's a limitation, it brings with it a door of emotion that you have to enter your animation. The only way I can enter my animation is by emotionally connecting with it. I, have to, I really do have to feel what the character is feeling. I have to, to know it, it's an energy of movement. It's a dynamic feeling of if it's a ballerina leaping, it's like, how does she feel? How does, she wants to fly. What does that feel like on your back as you're throwing your back right? I have to know that, which is why I, often, I have to actually go through and do a lot of study before I can animate. You know, with ballet, I mean, I, I did a lot of, like, studying with the New York City ballet workout. Early in the morning, I'd go through and plies <laughs> and all of that. And uh, my son would get, come out early in the morning and see his dad doing these plies. And I didn't see anything, Dad. <laughs> it's kind of nice because it it's a very visceral way of animating mm. that I, I feel I connect with the drawings. And the drawings connect with people because they're, they're pretty much like I, I say that they uh, the lines are are a seismograph of my soul. I'm putting so myself. Poetic. Yeah, it is. Um, they are like that, mm. and you do feel that. And it's painful to know that you you put all of that in your your drawing, and your drawings have never been up on the screen. They're all. The thing is, is that. I would do these drawings um, at the end of Fox and Hound after I did all this bear fight stuff and poured my heart and soul into that. Somebody came in my office with a little cart, loaded up all the drawings, and we're starting to wheel it away. So where are you going? Well, we're going to shred them. What? Well, this is what we've always done. All the artwork that was from Snow White, Pinocchio, Bambi has, has all been shredded. No, no, that's the cleanup. The original actual animation, the animators' drawings have all been destroyed. I thought there was a big archive. There is. There's a huge archive of but all the cleanup the clean. drawings. Because the cleanup drawings are the things that were seen up on the screen. Mm -hmm. That's where the value is. That artwork uh, was not considered valuable because it was all in service of the um, what was going to be projected up there. It's genuinely devastating. I well, really thought it was, I was being safe. But there's two different views. I mean, there's a purist view where everything is serving the screen. Mm -hmm. What it is up on the screen, that's what counts. And that's a really pure cinematic view of a filmmaker, a movie maker. And I realized, wow, that's secondary for me. That it's really about the art making mm -hmm. is primary for me. And when... Peter Schneider had come into Disney and, um, and was head of the animation department. His background was in theater, and this was when Michael Eisner had come in. And Peter had this whole department. He didn't really know much about animation, but he was fantastic at bringing artists together and getting them to talk. So there was this question, what are we going to do with all this artwork? We've been shredding it. Do we keep doing that? And I thought, this is, this is our chance. And I was shocked to find that many in their, their room who were artists, animators, keeping the original drawings was no big deal. It, 
there was a different purist view. Then there were others who were like, no, no, it is about it. To me, it's never never gets better than that moment when you actually drew it on the paper. No. So when you're doing a sequence, what sort of percentage of time do you spend thinking and studying and learning compared with how long you spend actually drawing it? What's your sort of process? Well, at the beginning, there's usually the top surface of an idea. I mentioned to you, okay, Pocahontas. In my mind, Pocahontas. Immediately, certain things come to mind, and I picture what I know about Pocahontas, some drawings of Native Americans, and I realize that as I try to draw a Native American woman, I don't know how to draw a Native American woman. It looks like a Caucasian, and I'm relying on clothing or something. And very quickly, as I start, and I just start to try to draw, and I find that my knowledge goes very shallow, and I don't, I need more. And so then I start, I realize, okay, whatever my knowledge depth is, I draw to that, and then I hit the bottom, and I now go out and I start to research. And that, that means traveling to the place, like for, for Pocahontas, it was to actually go to Jamestown and imagine her meeting John Smith, meeting and speaking to uh, Native American people, drawing their faces and immersing myself in that culture, going to powwows and uh, Indian dances and just loving that culture. I think that's what it is. It's about loving. Mm. When I went back to Jamestown, I was trying to imagine being Pocahontas and John Smith. I was trying to imagine being John Smith because I could get into his head quicker and I was walking through the forest thinking so if this was him there's a stream I thought what if what if it was right here that Pocahontas came up on a canoe and they met they could have been I just have to imagine it and as I'm imagining all of this uh, I'm in the woods and I hear this excuse me excuse me and I turn around and there's this beautiful Indian woman come walking up Native American she says Excuse me, are you, are you Glenn Keane? I said, yes. The animator that's going to do Pocahontas. I said, yeah. And then behind another tree came this other woman, and she said, oh, my name's Shirley Little Dove. This is my sister, Debbie White Dove. We're descendants of Pocahontas. And as they stood there, I mean, I took a picture of both of them. And between their faces was like Pocahontas's face. And in my mind, I could see her. And they're both beautiful. They had a, a nobility in the way they stood. And, and all the way through the whole film, I had their faces on my desk there as a reminder of that. Because it was real. I was animating something I believed. Mm. I mean, I think you, you really have to, to believe in what you're, you're animating on. Um, I love to animate characters that believe the impossible is possible. I've got this burning desire inside of them. That i got to connect inside with them. Tarzan went to Africa with my son, Max, and went into the jungles. And I tried to imagine if I was Tarzan and I had to grow up here in the jungle, what would it be like? It's wild out there. And I'm thinking, how do you survive? The courage it must take. And, and I started thinking of Tarzan, you know, watching Max skateboarding and started thinking of him as a more of a tree surfer and I wondered about moss on the trees 
could you actually slide on a tree? And so Max and I climbed up into the branches and there, yeah, there's sure enough, there's moss hanging down, there's, there's vines hanging there. With Rapunzel, my daughter Claire, ever since she's little, she wanted to paint her ceilings and her walls. And, but she was only six years old and my wife Linda is saying, there's no way we're gonna set a six year old loose in the house with wet paint. But when it came time to think about who's going to do Rapunzel's mm. art, I asked Claire to come in. She just graduated from art school in Paris and she just crawled in the skin of that character and was Rapunzel. Yeah, some beautiful work, really lovely stuff. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a way of thinking. I guess my dad based his comic characters on his own family, so it's natural that mm. you, people that you love, enter into your work. Ariel was designed after my wife. That's a pretty good tribute to your wife, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Okay, so my last question is that you're obviously someone that's um, very famous for what you can do with a pencil, but you've also always been someone that seems to either push or at least embrace technology. So um, is that something that you see as important in the future going forward? And you chose, you know, your first directorial effort was CGI film. So why did you make that decision to go CGI? Well, the fact is that it, wherever technology has crossed my path and it's been consistent all the way through my whole career from doing the first computer animation with where John Lasseter, where the wild things, but even before that in the Fox and the Hound, after doing all this charcoal drawing, I wanted that to be up on the screen. I did not want it to be cleaned up and yeah. painted traditionally. I wanted that to be on there. And I was hunting around for some way to do it and ran into Don Iwerks, who was of Iwerks' son, who was head of research. Hi. And he said, well, you know, I, I'm thinking about another process, uh, photographic cells where you can actually photograph the artwork and it'll be on the cell and you just paint the back of that and we can have your charcoal drawings up on the screen. Whoa, yeah, let's do it. Well, we ran out of time. And great ideas, they don't die. They just go underground, <laughs> like a river that just kind of ran out of water enough Money, to be on probably. the surface. <laughs> yeah, but it's still flowing and it's come up again now for like for me for du duet, mm. that look of a duet is all about celebrating line and drawing and the original up on the screen. It's such a rewarding, satisfying thing. That was technology crossing the path, but it always forces me to draw better, to, to, to think of myself more as an artist. The Wild Things test was drawing dimensionally in space. Tarzan, now he's moving in dimensionally in a world and we're sculpting the trees painting the trees, the forms. He was in a solid dimensional environment that I could imagine myself in. And Treasure Planet Silver has got a mm. CG arm actually attached to the drawings. Yeah. And with Rapunzel, when I presented that to Michael Eisner, he said, yes, I love this, we should do this. And I had showed him all these drawings. I said, um, oh, that's great. He said, but, but Glenn, I, I want you to, uh, to do it in CG. I said, well, well, Michael, do you do you like the drawings? He said, oh, I love them. So, but you can't you can't do that in CG at that time. I mm. didn't see the it wasn't when about there. Are we talking? This is uh, two thousand one. Yeah, and um, 
he said, yeah, but there must be some way to take what you love in hand-drawn and put it into CG. And I thought it was maybe a naive remark, but a very honest and pure challenge. I thought, how could I, how could I just say no to that? Like, mm. nah, well, I don't even know what I'm saying no to. I, so I took that as a challenge to try to, is there a way to bring what I love in hand-drawn in it? It really brought up a lot of interesting, like what is drawing? What am I giving up? Like one of the things I found out was the first thing, I remember just struggling with that. Like, well, what is drawing really? Michelangelo said, design, or as it is called by another name, drawing, is the root and fountainhead substance of all architecture, painting, sculpture, and science. Mm. Let him who has attained this know that he possesses a great treasure. Okay, this is a treasure, but I don't even understand it. It just happens. I thought, all right, like, what do I actually look at when I draw? I started watching what my eye saw. And the first thing I noticed was I don't look at the line. If you ever watch yourself draw, you don't look at the line you draw. Right. You look next to the line. You are actually looking at the form that the line is describing. If it's a face, you're drawing this edge out here, but that's the side of the face. And then you jump over and draw the other side of the face. It's just like Ollie's comment. No line uh, exists on its own. It, every line relates to another. You are actually, the lines are holding the form inside. Mm. And I realized that CG can be sculptural drawing. It needs to be. That's kind of been my my goal, it's those two train tracks that are coming together. I think Paperman was getting close yeah. to that. And I want to keep moving towards that, finding a way to bring drawing and sculpture, CG together so they're, they're helping to define that form. That's the future, that's where I see us going. Fantastic. Okay, I probably better end it there. Thank you so much. That was, yeah. Thank that you, was Katie. so enlightening. <laughs> so one of the most um, creative uh, stop-motion animators in, in recent years, somebody whose films always bring a smile to the face, is, um, is Pess. Pess obviously is um, uh, a sort of master craftsman of just sort of very satisfying stop-motion to watch. And I... I I'm sure we've talked about him quite a lot on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've never had him on before now, but it's uh, a real privilege to. I've always, in a weird way, equated him with Don Hertzfeld, not in terms of style necessarily, but in terms of the um, the freshness and uniqueness of his, his artistic spirit, perhaps. The real, a real sort of indie edge to what he does, mm-hmm. even though he now you know, does, has sort of branched out into more commercial work. It's still kind of... It, it maintains the sense of, of his overall kind of style. Like, say, when you see an advert that uh, uh, Mikey Please does. Yeah. You know, it remains a, a work of art. It's not this kind of filtered-down, watered-down version of uh, of what made them great to begin with. And what really that's down to is just his sense of visual ingenuity. Mm-hmm. So for to sort of sum it up, in case anyone hasn't seen his work, in fact, pause the podcast if you haven't, and, and go hunt him out. Go to eatpez.com and have a look at some of his films. 
And I guarantee that if you don't know who we're talking about, you'll probably recognize them and be like, oh, that guy. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's uh, th- these two films, uh, Fresh Guacamole and Western Spaghetti, They, it's like food preparation, but with household items and little bits and bobs, sort of knickknacks and detritus and uh, things like that as foodstuffs and as ingredients all made into a, uh, uh, a meal. It's like great grating uh, wool over dinner. It looks great. The way that you transferred this kind of, this action into essentially presenting uh, something plays a weird game with the senses. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of my old favorites of his going back uh, a ways now, probably over 10 years ago, is uh, Roof Sex. Yes. You know, which is just furniture humping each other on top of a rooftop in New York. <laughs> just because why not? You know, why not? Indeed. I first saw that as part of the Spike and Mike collection, I think. Yeah. That's such a, such a funny film. I think he perfectly sort of captures the spirit of what it is to progress a medium outside of a, a studio system, you know, mm-hmm. to just really think outside the box. And, and Bill Plimpton actually cited him as a specific influence on, on, on him as a filmmaker, Bill Plimpton being someone who had worked in animation for many, many years beforehand. And I think he was at a point in his career where maybe in himself he felt that he was coasting and he hadn't done anything really sort of new. And uh, I think it was Roof Sex or... It was a, it was one of the earlier Pez films, um, but it was essentially indirectly inspired Guard Dog, not in terms of the story, but in terms of, like, I got to really think hard about my next film and think of something that's different and think of something that is a different approach to storytelling and film and, and, and do something new, mm-hmm. you know. Bill Plimpton just doing a Pez-type film would have been a weird thing to do, just like imitating someone else's style. But I think when you can see someone do something and be like, damn, I want to do something that has a, a, a real impact, that's, I think, the best way to take inspiration. Where I think a lot of people, they look at something so magnificent that these people are doing, these amazingly talented uh, animators and artists, and then they think to themselves, I could never do that. I could never... You know, do like a Mikey Please film. I I wouldn't know where to begin, so why bother? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of not the point. It's about you know you don't want to do something the way they do it. You want to do your thing to the similar degree of you know uniqueness and ingenuity and that kind of thing. And that's not going to be easy for some. But uh, I think that people would be more enthusiastic about the great wide world of animation out there and be less disheartened by it if they took that attitude toward it. Mm -hmm. That's one of the main reasons I do this, to be perfectly honest. The whole squiggly thing is about maintaining an enthusiasm for all these amazing new things going on in the world of short films and trying to, like, you know, grab them and rub them in front of my friends' faces and say, look, isn't this great? Yeah. You know? And some people get it and some people don't, but I do feel that more people are kind of starting to appreciate what it is we're trying to do with this mm. um and then of course there's been that sort of core group who were with us from uh from day one pretty much but uh some people i guess just have a different sort of uh way of looking at what their role in the industry is going to be and uh some people are just perfectly happy to kind of just work in animation and, and you know do asset management or compositing or whatever uh have a specialty then there are some people who want to do something more creative and that can be a bit of a minefield in terms of ego and in terms of um, personal disillusionment and that kind of thing. And I 
I don't think it needs to be, mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest. And I think that you, to look to the people like Pez and Bill Plimpton and Don Hertzfeld and all of the others that we've had on the podcast in the past and hopefully will in the future, they're examples of not trying to do something to please others, but doing something to sort of artistically fulfill yourself. Yeah. You know? Which in a way can be inspirational. It, 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 it must be inspirational. I mean, like you say, Pez, I'm not a stop motion animator, but Pez's films are inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, would, I wouldn't be able to animate something like his, but I just appreciate the ingenuity and the, you know, I just stare at them in wonder and it just fire off, you know, my own sort of, you know, oh, wow, I just, I want to, I want to do something now. And, and then I just, you know, apply that sort of in, encouragement into my own projects or, you know, something that I need to do. They are fantastic for for inspiring. I think it was a, there was a particular Don Hertzfeld short that um, kind of kicked my ass into gear a bit. Um, a while, this was a long time ago now, but the the last film that I made, I made and released, which was a few years ago now, and it had been a couple of years after my sort of main thesis film, and it's the only film that ever achieved a level of financial success and and real sort of wide distribution i suppose like actual actually being able to sort of sell it and i think that a big part of what got me off my ass to just do it once the sort of initial funding had run out was uh it was a film from by don hertzfeld it's called billy's balloon which i'm sure you've seen yeah and it's just a simple idea done very well now i didn't then go to my light box and start making a film with stick figures and killer balloons Mm -hmm. or anything that I think even vaguely resembles what Don Hertzfeld has done before. But just that he did, it was clearly a film he had just done and an idea he had just had and he just went with it. And the film that I ended up sort of putting together was something I had written in like a notebook, like a year or so before, and then just never sort of looked at it again. And then Mm -hmm. I saw this film and was like, to hell with it. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. And that proved to be worth the time, certainly. Mm-hmm. And I think I owe a lot of, certainly the first year of, of regular industry work I got after that, I, I owe to the sort of festival exposure and, you know, the uh, the broadcast exposure of that film, which then did not go on to win anything like BAFTAs or Oscars or anything of particular consequence, but I think that hmm. was the right thing to do <laughs> at that sort of state. And I... I, I I, I'd never look back at that time in my life and, and think to myself, damn, I should have been working for that month. I think if you decide that you want to be a creative or you want to work in a creative industry, you need to be creative. You need to be inspired. You need to be constantly ready to to, to be inspired or to take inspiration for us and open to new things. And I think as, as well as being, you know, you're not constantly inspired, but like you said, you know, Bill Plimpton probably thought he was coasting or some people aren't inspired or some people are kind of languishing. And it's knowing that you're languishing or or, or or not doing your best. It's knowing that as well is just as important being creative as just being creative, as being good at drawing or being, you know, or knowing how to animate. You know, that that you know, there are other skills that you need. And you do get these from the process of, you know, it's, it's all part of the process of being a creative being a you know being into animation which involves going to festivals and seeing films and being inspired and and everything else and there's you know it just so happens that somebody like Pez or Bill Plimpton or somebody like that is a particular inspiration to you mm-hmm. 
I, I just think there's something particularly special about what he does, and he uh, does have a new film that is just wrapped up. It's called Submarine Sandwich, and it uh, was one of the uh, very easy to predict as a uh, Kickstarter success story. And mm-hmm. it looks like, you know, classic Pez. It doesn't seem like it's this kind of new, slick direction for Pez to go, and it's made in, you know, like I say, sort of more controlled environments than probably the very indie films that he would have made back in the day. But it maintains that very kind of, you know, indoor craft-based you know, well put together. Uh, I guess it just basically is using the the sort of funding available to make it a little more sort of visually ambitious so it can, uh, you know, make better use of the sort of production design and the sets and that kind of thing. But why am I talking about it when we can hear from the man himself? The first thing of yours that really kind of pricked people's ears up was uh, roof sex. Uh-huh. I was wondering, could you chat a little bit about what you had sort of done up to that point, what your sort of career background was? Sure. I mean, I grew up as a kind of artistic kid. You know, I was always painting and drawing as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to, you know, through a traditional uh, school um, situation. I started showing my own work, fine art stuff, my paintings through high school, little shows. And um, I always had a sort of interest in children's books and writing and illustrating things. And I was always making things. Mm-hmm. Um I went to college. I went to the University of Virginia, um, amazing school, um, and I continued my pursuit of, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, the arts. I studied printmaking for all four years, and you know, really got into some, you know, obscure techniques and, you know, lots of like fifteenth-century uh, techniques of etching and and stuff. And I uh, continued making my own little books and and such. And, um, you know, it wasn't until the very end of college where I started to uh, you just open my mind to the world of animation. So film really wasn't a part of my, my early life at all. In fact, I don't even know if I knew what a director did until I actually set out to make my first film. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but when I graduated college, um, you know, I went to New York City, which is close to where I grew up. And uh, I started working in a large ad agency there in the creative department and uh, at a real low entry level position that uh, afforded me the uh, the oppor- you know opportunity to kind of see how ad agencies work and at that time which was the late 90s there was a lot of really interesting short content being created around the world in particular stuff coming out of Sweden and the Netherlands mm-hmm. um, the kind of stuff that they could put on TV there was just so far beyond what we'd ever see here in the United States uh, with censorship and et cetera. And, um, and I was really excited by, you know, what was going on in the world of short films and music videos. And, and I was watching all the reels of these directors who were coming up through commercials like David Fincher and Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones. I mean, all these guys had both commercials and short films on their reels. And it was interesting to see what they came up with. And, and I was really inspired to uh, try my hand at this. Um, I just decided that I wanted to make, I had just a bunch of ideas and I wanted to start making them. So that's really what I did. I, you know, in my off time at the ad agency, I was working on my own concepts and designing my storyboards. And on lunch breaks, I would go and 
um, pick out costumes. And my first films were live action, but I started shooting them while I was working at the ad agency. And, you know, even having a little bit of um, public success when the, the, the films that I made were, um, you know, sent to various magazines and picked up by the press sources. And um, at the time, I was exposed to the work of the great Czech surrealist Jan Schwankmeyer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just happened upon a screening of his feature film, Conspirators of Pleasure, around that time at the Film Forum in New York City. And I remember after that screening, which was a feature, a live action feature film that had no words in it, but it had these sort of sequences of stop motion interspersed. And I remember after that show, I was just so intrigued by these stop motion sequences that he had done with objects and stuff that I went directly to Kim's video in the East Village and um, bought every bootleg VHS tape, <laughs> it was still VHS at the time, that I could get my hands on. And um, I happen to have this amazing VHS player at my house, which allowed you to scrub one frame at a time. Not all VHS players allowed that. <laughs> and um, and sure enough, began my fascination with Schwankmeyer. And, and I think he really cracked open my, um, my perception of, um, you know, of this world of animation. And, uh, and he had created all these amazing short films in this, you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s that, just blew my mind and I was immediately drawn to this and started thinking oh my god I gotta start experimenting with this I I feel like he was onto something and yet I have my own ideas let me let me start thinking about how I would do this um, mm. and so I started fishing around for my own idea um, to experiment with this technique and just sort of um, put something out there that I felt strongly about and that's when I developed the idea of uh, roof sex, which was based on an old concept of uh, furniture pornography. <laughs> and, uh, and I set about making that film. And so that was my first animated film, which I knew absolutely nothing about animation because I never studied it in school. I never had any hands-on uh, experience or whatever. So I bought a Bolex camera at the time. It was, if you wanted to shoot nice-looking film and for cheap, you had to still, you know shoot on film and 16 millimeter was pretty cheap so I bought a Bolex camera and a projector and uh, then I started ordering all this doll furniture from eBay and uh, it arrived at my house my roommates thought uh, I was going a little crazy but I'd stay up late at night after all the video game playing was over and uh, I just you know animate these doll chairs on my table until I felt comfortable enough with the process that I knew I could animate real chairs on a roof and that's how I taught myself. Hmm. So had you sort of worked out the timing on the small scale and kind of yeah. blocked it out there? So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, one thing that definitely does stand out is the fluidity of the animation in all of the major films of yours that, um, and how sort of well-observed it is, so whether it's food preparation or... Um, and I always found like the accuracy of the um, in Game Over, the way the sprites would move. Um, mm -hmm. just, it's exactly that kind of quality of movement that you oftentimes with your films, do you use like, um, what do you say? Film reference footage or study certain types sure, of movement? Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, although there was really nothing to study in two chairs having sex. Right. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but you know, again, it, it really was just a, a sort of rhythm thing, you know, how many frames forward and how many frames back in order to get that right. Um, 
But um, with Game Over, yeah, of course, I, I, you know, I got an emulator on my computer and I um, started recording, you know, sequences in these famous arcade games and studying them. You know, you know, how many frames does it take Pac-Man to die at the end, or yeah. you know, how many frames before the frog, you know, between, you know, when the frog jumps each time, you know, what's the hold mm. or, you know, when the spider comes to get you in centipede, you know, exactly yeah. <laughs> how he moves. So I, I, I studied these things and I broke them down to understand, you know, how many frames in the real game. So it was, it's dead on accurate when it comes to movement, but it wasn't, you know, I didn't rotoscope it or anything. I, I really just sort of studied the games so much so I understood, um, you know, what mm. had to happen and then just sort of recreated it. But, um, but I, you know, I wasn't like copying the game. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a nice sort of panic moment in uh, Frogger. Mm-hmm. But there's a sort of point where, you know, because you know you're in trouble, anyone who's played the game, that sort of quick thinking scenario and just that kind of like little burst of panic. And then it's okay because yeah. he's reached the other side of the, the river. Yeah, well, I mean, again, like a flame like Game Over is really built on my my no my perception that what we remember most about these games is, you know, not all the wins we had, but but how that, you know, bugger got you in the end. Yeah. You know? That thing that just drove you crazy, you know, whether it was, you know, you're shooting, you know, centipedes down and then the spider just comes out of nowhere. Hmm. And um or in Space Invaders, how, you know, even if you, even if we were to kill all the aliens so that you only have one left, how often it was that you couldn't even get the, the last one. Yeah. He would come all the way down and get you. Then he'd bring his A game. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's just this notion that, like, you know, uh, it was more memorable for how you died than how you lived, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really the concept there, to kind of string some famous death sequences together. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, uh, the the genesis of Submarine Sandwich essentially would probably go back to Western Spaghetti. Yeah. Beyond the sort of the food substitution angle mm-hmm. um, of just sort of like approximating like a, a food stuff with a, another item, with the real ingenuity for me is is how items can become other items and yet remain the same food. And it's when it's that moment when it goes from one frame and it's one thing, and then you know you sliced into something or something's you know been boiled or cooked or manipulated and is now a completely different set of objects. It, it, it works absolutely perfectly because that's how that object physically behaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I guess this was such a submarine sandwich is such a great showcase of that because there's that very sort of specific process that all of the ingredients go through when they're being sliced. Yeah. And what was your sort of process for like thinking of okay now this is what this food looks like in this form, but then what then is like the sliced form of that? Well, it's really like casting, you know, ca- uh-huh. elaborate casting sessions that I <laughs> I hold for months on end. <laughs> um, you know, I rack my brain for you know the best ideas and hope that they you know emerge. Mm. So the one idea I was really in love with to make film like submarine sandwich was this idea of putting a boxing glove inside a meat slicer mm-hmm. i thought that was a really tantalizing image you know um just putting it there boxing gloves always seem like cold cuts or you know fine italian meats mm-hmm. so to speak 
and uh, you know, putting the knuckle first towards the blade you know, is a certain sort of um, palpable feeling, I think. And then, of course, seeing what comes out the other side and um, <clears throat> deciding you know, who's going to get the lead role. Um, it just so happens that I have to, you know, scour the world for very thin objects, <laughs> thin, <laughs> small objects like patches and doilies and, you know, viewmaster reels and, and all these things. And so, you know, one of the challenges of the film is really, you know, there is a certain limit to mm -hmm. the objects that come in that shape and size. And some of those ideas aren't going to sync up as perfectly as others. Um, mm. And um, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, I have to go with what I think is the best decision I can make at any time. So there might be like you know, there may have been multiple um, actors, you know, uh, considered for the role of onion rings, but. Right. You know, in the end, you know, Slinky gets the job. <laughs> I guess a lot of people don't realize how much thought and how much work goes into trying to decide or uncover those associations. Those are sometimes you're struck with a lightning, you know, a lightning bolt. Like this is a great idea. Like, you know, if you recall in Western Spaghetti, I had used dice actually as sugar cubes. Mm -hmm. um, typically, you know, cut the acid of a of a, a tomato sauce with a sugar cube. Most people in America don't even know that sugar comes in the form of cubes. It's a little bit of a European, um, you know, European thing. So, um, but I was going with it because um, I still thought it was a good idea. It was a, a, a sort of look-alike, but 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 the the connection there really stopped at the at the look-alike mm -hmm. um, level. And um, somewhere in between there and fresh guacamole, I realized that. A better idea would be to use dicing as dicing because that's what we say. We dice a tomato or dice an onion. Hmm. And, um, and then it became just a question for me of whether or not to prioritize the creation of one's own vocabulary, as in I used it as a sugar cube. Can I use it again as something totally different? Of course, the, the decision I made was, yes, of course, I have to choose the best, you know, the best thing for every film. So, so I chose that um, as... Uh, you know, as that for that dicing sequence, mm. and um, the you know exact literally the exact same dice. It's sort of nice to see uh, certain items return, as the uh, like with the the eyes at the end sprinkled onto the uh, <laughs> and uh, the little. What is it that flames are made of? That sort of is it a kind of confection? Oh yeah, that's some. It's a very popular candy in the United States called candy corn. Uh huh. And uh, it's a traditional candy. It's been around for over 100 years. Um, it was first introduced in the 1800s, you know, uh, as, as, and marketed as sort of chicken feed for adults. Um, <laughs> and um, you can find some of the early packages online. Um, they've got, like, chickens walking around eating these things off the ground. But, but um, anyway, it, it's one of these strange candies that has become a sort of icon of Halloween here. So, you know, between mm. October... Um, September, you start seeing them in the stores in October, and then by Thanksgiving, you know, a billion of them have come and gone, um, and you don't start seeing them again till the following October. And so uh, I have a particular fascination for these, you know, strange objects that have sort of woven themselves into our lives, and we, we almost stop questioning. Um, we just sort of take these things like, oh, yeah, it's just a Halloween candy comes out, but uh, it's bizarre. Mm. Um, it's a bizarre how this particular candy, uh, 
you know, has 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 kind of reached its current status. So, um, I, I I don't know. To me, they always look like flames, mm. and I've used them many times in my films as as such. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll figure out a better use for them, but but I still always think of like little flames when I eat them. It's interesting in this film. You're you're more sort of visibly in it, like the shots where you're actually sort of fully in frame, <laughs> as opposed to the other two. Whereas was it? Because I it hadn't sort of occurred to me before, I sort of saw the the making of that uh, Nikon put up. That ordinarily, did you do the? Did you play the hands and have someone helping you take the pictures? And yes. I see. So you you've always, always been the. My hands. I see. Always my yeah. Is the person who does the animation the person you've worked with all the time, or were they brought on for this particular film? Um, brought on for this particular film for Submarine Sandwich, I worked with. A, I brought in a co-animator that uh, Dylan Markey is wonderful, talented uh, animator, mm-hmm. and uh, he uh, he also uh, helped me do fresh guac uh, fresh guacamole. Um, mm-hmm. I hired a different animator to do uh, Western Spaghetti with me. Um, again, I was in New York when I did Western Spaghetti, and Los Angeles when I did uh, fresh guacamole. But um, you know. There's really two components to the animation in these films. Mm. One is the animation of the hands, which yeah. is me. And that, all the subtleties there that are required to kind of make it feel believable and not so, you know, not ugly. Mm. Um, so, and then, of course, all the animation of objects that um, are, are based around my hands, um, requires a, a, a partner, a teammate in the production. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's totally different than a film like Game Over, where you just have your objects and you don't need anyone else. You can just do it. Yeah, this is more of like, you know, two people have to really get on the same wavelength for months. And uh, Dil- you know, Dylan and I, um, you know, we had success with fresh guacamole, and and you know, he understands my tastes and the things that you know I'm I'm, I'm usually seeking to achieve in in my animation and. Uh, you know, he's become a great, you know, great partner in that respect. So, mm. it also feels more of a um, like it's more of a set piece in a sense, like the the deli environment. Um, that sort of because I from, I from what I sort of picked up, he didn't sort of rent a deli space for a while. It was all kind of constructed, and uh, why that sort of location? I suppose was it largely down to just that you wanted it to be about meat and slicing. Or was there a particular sort of like atmosphere you were you wishing to evoke? Well, you know, all my films are these personal things, and so this film idea really started with a simple idea. Like I told you, it was just let's cut some meat in that slicer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it was all going to take place on the slicer and the cutting board, you know, and the uh, sandwich board where we assemble the sandwich. Yeah, and then it was like, well, if I'm slicing Italian ham. You know, well, I got I got some to have some more meats in that deli, and you know, athletic equipment itself always, you know, old athletic equipment always reminded me so much of cold cuts that I started envisioning a deli case filled with these things, hmm. um, a, a sort of meat locker, so to speak. There's a sort of cross between an athletic locker room and a uh, deli, um, which is. It was just an idea that tickled me. So yeah. I, I then started working on, you know, well, I'm not just making a ham sandwich. I'm, I'm making something bigger. It's, you know, it's a bigger sandwich, and there's a name for that. I grew up in New Jersey. They call it a submarine sandwich. 
I just thought that was an interesting idea. Mm. Pile of meat. I've got my deli case. I found my deli case. And then I'm starting to think, you know, if I want to show this deli case, I kind of have to show the deli as well. <laughs> mm. So the camera's pulling back further and further and further until I just said, uh, it. I'm just going to make a whole deli. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sort of ballooned from this sort of simple idea of slicing a boxing glove into, I got to make a whole deli. And then <laughs> it really is is that you know, like you said, it's it's not so easy to say, hey, to a local deli, can I shoot in your space? Even if you were to shoot at midnight every night for six hours, it's just impossible to think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course. It's also very uh, costly to consider renting props for such as these for a long period of time. I mean, in Hollywood, there's plenty of prop houses, um, but you know, you, you pay really high fees to rent this stuff, even for just a week. Hmm. So it really became like, well, I got to just buy the deli, <laughs> <laughs> and then it just comes down to me being like, am I going to buy cheap film props or am I going to put some real authentic stuff in here? Um, mm. and it's just maybe my nature that I, I always want to craft a space and make it personal. So I'm thinking to myself, well, if I'm going to make a deli, this could be the only time I'm making a deli in my life. Mm. Um, as far as I, as far as I know right now, <laughs> um, why not make it that place that feels like a home to me? I mean that, you know, if I were to have a deli, this is kind of what it would look like. Mm. <laughs> um, it would have busts of Dante and Beatrice as the patron saints. <laughs> and pictures of the Pantheon and St. Peter's in Rome, and you know, <laughs> um, you know, but the, you know that that was the fun of it for me. Is uh, it was making the space with all these old signs, which are all real. None of them, and you know, sourcing those objects from around the uh, around the world, um, flea markets to Craigslist to eBay, every, everywhere I was getting stuff and. Um, um, it was so. It was a much bigger build, you know. What I mean, it, fresh guacamole, western spaghetti were purely tabletop films, mm-hmm. uh, and this one was um, a whole space. So, I don't think it's you know it doesn't make the film any better for that reason. I don't think. I just think it just was what what felt right for this mm-hmm. particular idea. So, how far along was it when, like, how far along was the film in terms of production? When it came to like, we'll need to turn to crowdfunding to to get this one finished. Um, it wasn't far along at all, except that I had started um, to purchase some stuff. So the big purchase I had made up to that point was the deli case. Mm-hmm. Um, I had bought that because I had been watching the eBay space for over a year. I thought <laughs> it was going to be easy to just go find an old piece of deli equipment that had a, a bit of personality that matched. It matched my notion of what this cool old deli could look like because I always loved the old scales and all that white porcelain enamel mm. equipment and and you know that that real old school New York deli feel mm. um, and I thought it would just be like I'll go to the junkyard of delis and pick this I have my pick of the litter as it turns out it was much more difficult to find this stuff than I would have ever expected it took me over a year of watching eBay for a vintage deli case that had uh, that sense of style that matched what I had in my mind. And of course it was really expensive and I had to jump on it. So I sort of, I knew I had to jump on that. And once I jumped on it, I knew I had to make the film. I wasn't just going to put this deli case in my living room. 
Um, so that was a major purchase and and when I made that purchase I was like all right well now I can start filling it out so I was starting to collect the um, the the uh, boxing gloves and and uh, the athletic equipment that would go in that case but but that process is also kind of one that you know extended over months it's not like you can go to um, one shop and say I'd like yeah, I'd like thirty old boxing uh, bags, um, all white or off white, um, mm. so I can hang them from the ceiling. It, it's not like that. I mean, you, you know, I had to kind of shop for those one by one and find specific vendors that I could maybe, you know, purchase some from. And so, so that sort of hand picking was going on, um, and that's all the stuff that kind of made me confident to say um, to Nikon, look. This is the next film I'm going to make. Um, you know, we'd love your support. You know, can we work something out? Hmm. And they were wonderful. And they, they, you know, immediately, you know, said yes. And we worked out some details. And they gave a little bit of money. And obviously, they had um, announced the release of that D810 camera, which, uh, which seemed like a really cool thing to um, coincide with the creation of my film, I said, you know, well, why don't we just shoot it on that? And, you know, I did some tests with it and uh, was happy with the results. The imagery is, you know, it's fantastic. I mean, the images themselves are about 8K. So, mm. you know, I'm downsizing about four times just to get an HD version of the film. Yeah. So, um, so they, you know, they sent me all this equipment and, and uh, you know, and it all came from an interview that I had once done online. I don't even remember when, but but whatever I said, I said I used Canon cameras and Nikon lenses, <laughs> and uh, which is true. Um, <laughs> that's that's how I used to work. I, I I felt like I used you know a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Hmm. And they read that, and they were like, they approached me and said, "Look, we read that you do this, but." we think we've solved some of those issues that have plagued our cameras regarding stop motion. And we think that we have a camera that can compete and even best the one that you're using. Would you like to try it? It really didn't start with anything other than, Hey, would you like to test some stuff? And hmm. I said, sure, send it to me. And I threw the camera into a production hmm. and it was fun. It was like, you know, kid in a candy shop. I had all these lenses that, you know, I don't personally own, and was now able to experiment with, and and some real cool stuff like the perspective control lens is really cool, and what you can do with that. And I've just begun to explore what what can be done with that. But but anyway, it, it just worked out. I was like, yeah, sure, let's uh, let's shoot this film, um, let's try it, and um, and it worked out. But you know, part of that part of that whole process was, you know, uh, they they didn't give me enough money to totally finance the film. So we talked about, you know how to raise the remainder of that money so um so and, and turn to kickstarter because the goal was to make the film and have the ability to release it when and how i wanted so so we agreed that uh, doing a kickstarter which would be you know an interesting publicity um um opportunity as well for me and in a, in a different way of working for me because you know in the past i i would just sort of make you know i'd take money from clients or you know, people like Showtime or whoever was financing my films. And, you know, I just sort of work away for months. And then one day I would post the film online, you know. Mm. 
so the whole idea of doing a Kickstarter front where I had to kind of you know explain you know my vision or my ideas to people and get them excited about it to raise the money for it was that was a step for me mm. for sure um, because in the past I think I would normally say wow it won't be a surprise anymore. Why would I want to tell everyone about it? <laughs> and I'm also very suspicious about creating um, expectations. And I do, I do think, like the Kickstarter. Once you start telling people your idea, it's like, you know, you you have that. You open yourself up to, you know, what people expected and what the final product really is. And uh, it was all a little bit different for me, but um, worth doing. Having tried all the sort of different approaches of, of or, or experienced the sort of different funding um, uh, scenarios uh, with these three films all kind of coming together in quite different ways in terms of what's enabled you to make them, has yeah. there been one that you felt is the best sort of fit for you as an artist? That's a good question. Because you're right, the first film was financed by Mike Judge of Beavis and Butthood fame. Oh. He was the one who gave me money to make Western Spaghetti. Um, and um, in return, he, he wanted the right to uh, launch the film in, uh, I guess it was the Alamo Draft House in Austin, Texas, when the, his animation show hmm. kicked off in 2008. And, um, and then, of course, it was Showtime. That was, um, you know, again, all three of these situations have allowed me to make films without making any creative compromises. So there's no real difference in that. Um, the Kickstarter is a head scratcher because it's been a really positive experience and it's wonderful to, to be a little bit more connected to the fans, but it's a shitload of more work. Uh, you really have to take that into consideration. I mean, yeah. you know, we've been working harder over the last five months. I mean, it, it's just sort of exponentially creates work. Um, and I try really hard to, you know, keep the quality of the film there and, 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 at, at a, you know, focus. But, you know, it really is like running a pop-up business um, for six months um, and so many uh, th other things than just making a film have to take place. Um, yet at the same time, I, I feel like we all, all, all three situations have worked out really positively. I mean, Showtime released the film on their YouTube channel. That was part of the agreement. It didn't do poorly it really did well i mean online and obviously then the oscar nomination so i can't complain about you know the result um it's just that i i had mixed feelings about not being able to release a film to my core audience hmm. and that the people who would be seeing my film would not go to see my previous films they would go into showtime's sort of um film archives hmm. and um I was a little disappointed that all those people who could potentially be exposed to more of my previous work and, and what I do, um, you know, had to work extra hard or, or may have not even seen it the first year around. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then of course, you know, with the Showtime thing, you know, I really, really have been wanting to experiment with, um, you know, building out a little bit of merchandise around the films and, and, you know, it doesn't really just come from the idea of wanting to make money. It's like I, I studied printmaking for four years. I love making prints, and you know, I love like making T-shirts and stuff. And it was this whole Kickstarter thing was a little bit of an outlet for some of my other interests, uh, creative interests. Mm -hmm. um, and so I sort of jumped on it as a you know as a way in which. Um, 
I may be able to release a film with um, with some uh, other stuff that's uh, that's cool that's surrounding it. So you you know pick that kind of stuff up on my uh, website. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't something that was in the realm of possibility when working with a Showtime. They don't want any people after viewing the film going anywhere other than their own content. So it wasn't like, hey, can you give us a link to you know sell this cool T-shirt? Um, sorry, can't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so. You know, uh, in that way, um, the Kickstarter, the you know, Nikon thing is great. Now, I will say I have particular fondness for our relationship with Nikon right now. Um, it worked out so beautifully because I think our what what we each care about as entities synced up so well. Like Nikon's not in the business of owning films or trying to sign up corner them. To use them for their hits, you know what I mean. Yeah. Nikon's interest is mostly in the publicity of, hey, this guy did this cool thing. We supported him, and he used our equipment, and uh, so we really couldn't have hoped for a better partner there. And Kickstarter was um, was fantastic. I mean, obviously, you know, having people talk about your film like six months before it comes out, um, or four months, whatever it was. Uh, I've lost track of time these days, I'm sure you understand. Um, it was um, really cool. I mean, uh, really cool. And and something, frankly, that I, I didn't do too well in the past. I mean, like I said, I, I sort of got the money for my films and I worked in the dark and then put them online. There wasn't so much of that, you know, being in touch with the people who, who you know, really care about your work and, and getting to know them a little. And so... There's a nice sort of addition of that relationship. I mean, all three situations worked out. All three situations seem to be like, you know, sort of a bit of the evolution of how things are moving, you know? Mm. There is clearly an anticipation for the work when it is sort of teased out a few months in advance. And from your perspective and from like communicating with audiences and, and things like that, what do you think are the, the main sort of qualities or the mainstays of your style that you think people really latch onto and find the most appealing? Well, you know, I'm a big believer in, like, you know, tra- traditional structures. I mean, you know, I spent a lot of time working on trying to find that structure for my film that that feels like it has that beginning, middle, and end. Um, that, you know, I'm always looking for that sort of inevitable conclusion to a film that feels like it had to go there, yet I didn't quite expect it. You know, again, I was hoping with Submarine Sandwich, for instance, that, you know, the big idea there for me is in hiding the submarine to the very end. Obviously, the name of the film is Submarine, and I sort of teased it out with all these posters of a submarine sandwich. But, but I was hoping that, you know, traditionally I might say, let's say, I would start the film by, you know, t- picking my bread out and cutting that and then putting it down. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to reveal the submarine, and, and I had this notion that if I hold it to the end, it would be, you know, more of a satisfying conclusion. Because I'm always looking for that that satisfying way to end the film. So I think it comes back to, you know, again, we got to that point with them. Um, almost all my films have that priority on the ending, that sort of exclamation point at the yeah. end um, that, that sort of like n- makes watching the entire thing essential or you sort of miss it. You know, fresh guacamole with the chip um, being dipped and cracked at the end. And so I do think the fact that I was taking certain structures that are familiar and then of course looking at them through a different lens. I mean, I think, you know, when I animate objects that people are familiar with, looking, used to looking at them one way, and then all of a sudden I do something different with them, I think there's 
um, you know, there's that sort of unexpected quality that, that makes people want to know what happens next. So I'm a big believer that mm. you always have to tap into the viewer's desire to want to know what happens next. And all the things that people say you always need for a successful film, like characters and a story, you know, I, I don't really buy that. I kind of feel like if you can create a system where viewers want to know simply what happens next, then you have a short film. I mean, you have, mm. you know, you have something equally viable in the world. Um, it just may be a different, you know, a different venue. And then um, I think there's a particular degree of fascination with the sound design that I do. Mm. It sort of um, brings brings it together. You know, it's very realistic sound design and and the sort of detail that I pay to certain things. Um, the, 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 but I just think the sound design is a is sort of unsung hero. Um, it, that makes the images come to life. Uh, it really kind of, you know, it makes it makes the jokes come alive. It makes, you know, it makes one thing. It makes it believable. Of the, um, it may be a little sort of close to the the release of it, um, and you, or you might sort of be too sort of still immersed in the universe of mm. Submarine Sandwich. But of the three films, is there one that you prefer or have a, anticipate sort of having the most fondness for? It's it's hard to say. I mean. But yeah, I mean, I think fresh guacamole was one of those ideas that just it worked out um, particularly well. Things fell together. Um, the puzzle of it sort of came together in a, um, a total way. I, I have a particular fondness for that. But then who knows? Maybe I'm just fond of it because it's like it's worked its magic over on the uh, on, on people and and you know managed to. Uh, I don't know yet, though. Again, I'm too close to Submarine Sandwich to truly evaluate it fairly. Um, but, um, but you know, the nature of, of using a deli slicer was the challenge in this film. Because, you know, a knife, which fresh guacamole is really about a knife. Um, mm -hmm. And um, there's a little bit more transformative magic in, in, um, in fresh guacamole and using a knife. Um, you know, a deli slicer is is more challenging in that it's almost like having two rooms separated by a wall. <laughs> and, um, you know, what comes out one side, um, it, it, it's magical, but not maybe so magical as some of those um, those instances in fresh guacamole uh, where the knife comes down and it becomes something different. But again, that's just me evaluating my own work. I, I just, uh, I think fresh guacamole just tended to all work out in the best possible way. So that was Pez, director of Submarine Sandwich, his latest film, following on from the uh, successful short films Fresh Guacamole, Western Spaghetti, The Deep, uh, Roof Sex, and uh, a whole lot of really amazing inventive indie animation that, uh, you know, I, I like I said before, a great source of inspiration, a fantastic chap, and uh, we all wish him very well for his latest endeavor, and uh, uh, many more to come, one hopes. So uh, recently, you were at the Bradford Animation Festival. I was for the 2014 edition for my yearly pilgrimage to uh, to my hometown to see uh, see what's been going on in in, in the year of animation uh, and how they how Bradford and the Me National Media Museum uh, wish to present that. Now you've been uh, you've been part of the the festival for quite a few years, haven't you? Yes, it started when I was a student, and it's continued. I mean, my first Bradford Animation Festival was 2002. 
uh, and and then when I got to about two thousand, when it was two thousand and eight, uh, I volunteered as a as one of the guys who rips tickets and things like that because I figured it would be a better way to see the festival, and it was. It was immensely better. He got you to talk to animators and and, and be a, a lot more involved in the whole system. Got to make make friends, and it was a lot more kind of. Uh, you you weren't just going back to your your hotel room and getting drunk with guys from uni. You know, you were going. You were you were kind of getting more involved in the kind of animation atmosphere and things. And he got to know the festival team, who have become uh, very good friends since, uh, as well as the other volunteers, which are which are fantastic. And that's been going on since two thousand and eight, and this was uh, this year, two thousand fourteen. But it's sad because it seems that it could be the last one, the last Bradford Animation Festival, which is a terrible shame on two parts. It's a terrible shame on the festival uh, because we won't have this fantastic get together every year, and it's also a terrible shame for animation culture because. I can't off of the top of my head, and I'm not saying they don't exist, but I can't off the top of my head now picture an animation-only festival. The Bradford Animation Festival was that. It was a Bradford, It was the Bradford Animation Festival. It wasn't a film festival with an animation strand. It was an animation festival. Exeter has, uh, unfortunately, that won't be coming back in February, which is another huge loss, because that was a wonderful festival as well. And it appears to me that these festivals are, are, are kind of dwindling. And, and, and although uh, the work of Animation UK has been fantastic and we've managed to get these um, the, 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 the animation tax breaks, and according to the figures that Katie picked up in Manimation uh, in November, the, the conference talk, uh, we're creating twice as much animation in the UK now. Wonderful, fantastic, amazing. That's, that's perfect. That's what we wanted. Where are we going to showcase all this amazing work? It's great that it gets on TV. It's great that it gets online. But there's nothing that can replicate the festival experience. Now, the work that somebody like Kieran puts into Encounters or Ian puts into Edinburgh is absolutely wonderful. You feel like you're part of an inclusive group when you feel like you're watching. When you're watching the animations, you're really enjoying them. Um, and you're part of the festival experience. And it doesn't feel like you're tagging on to a film festival or that you're second class in any way. But to have a festival solely dedicated to animation, with screen talks, with screenings, with extra events, with uh, meet and greets, that is animation through and through. To not have that anymore is an absolute tragedy. That might sound like an exaggeration, but I think it's well-founded exaggeration that, well, I think it's well-founded and it's not an exaggeration uh, to say that it is a, a great shame that these festivals, these showcases of what we can create both nationally and internationally and celebrate and come together to celebrate are no more. I, I don't know what what could be done about that. I mean, what, what how, how could we combat this as a, as a, as a community? You know, sometimes I do kind of feel like our take on the community and the level of support is kind of funhouse mirror reflected back to us because I think what I've taken the most of from doing Squiggly and these podcasts and the interviews and various associated uh, endeavors, screenings and such like is that it was just good for me on a sort of personal level in terms of my perspective of the industry and sort of automatically since since I began three, four years ago, I just kind of had a much more supportive attitude 
about the industry and about festivals and about filmmakers and you know inspiring each other and collaboration and all of that kind of thing and you do see that in some people a lot of the people we tend to expose ourselves to but we also forget that or I certainly find myself forgetting from time to time that there are big large chunks of of the animation community that aren't supportive that are very much ego driven that are very much out for themselves that are not very um uh if something isn't immediately in front of them it's not something they put much concern or thought toward and i think that the biggest enemy of festival culture is this rather pernicious dependence people have on just having all our kind of media available to us and that breeds a kind of laziness and you know the the whole point as you say of the festival environment is to get out there and to get an experience that you just simply can't have elsewhere. Some festivals, frankly, don't provide that. I could think of many, many other festivals that that are more deserving of the acts than Bradford. Because I would cite last year's Bradford, I couldn't go this year, but last year's Bradford was easily one of the best festival experiences I've ever had, simply from the quality of the people that they they had over there, the the atmosphere of the venue the atmosphere of the staff, the vibe, the quality of the short film selection, which was not voluminous, so there was more of a chance for the actual films to be consistently good. Yeah. Then you have such great supplemental events like Joanna Quinn's life drawing class, like um, special retrospectives, special Q&As, Adam Buxton's wonderful uh, live show. Of course, the squiggly quiz which will be, I'm sure, the most sorely missed component. Well, <laughs> that's what we're really but getting behind. That's, that's a- just that it could facilitate something like that was great, because that was a very informal thing that everyone was really, you know, again, I only w- did the one, but everyone was really enthusiastic, really got into it. You know, it was always fun to sort of see the people kind of race to the prize table to snatch up <laughs> the book they wanted or whatever, that we were able to put on our own screenings there just sort of informally in the cafe. Yeah. One of our sort of most popular kind of videos is a Q&A that we did with Joanna Quinn that was very impromptu. Like, I think we kind of like thought, hey, this would be kind of a good idea. And within 20 minutes, like we'd corralled people into the cafe and filmed it. And uh, it was wonderful. And I think that for a festival environment to be able to, you know, facilitate that spontaneity and, and whip up that enthusiasm... Should speak volumes about it. Yeah. But, uh, going back to uh, this year's guest roster, mm. I believe uh, a staple of the Bristolian animation scene, well, really the UK animation scene, Mr. Peter Lord was there. He was indeed, yes. And uh, Peter Lord, of course, the very first guest of the Squiggly podcast. That really helped legitimize what we were trying to do quite early on. And I think that that opened the floodgates a little bit in the, the formative months of the the podcast. And it was a great film, Pirates uh, Adventure with Scientists. Absolutely loved it. But you got some time with him again at Bradford this year. Yes. Now, yeah. what's Peter Lord been up to in a post-Pirates world? Yes. He was there basically talking about Ardman. He was giving the whole history of Ardman from the beginning uh, with quite a few uh, interesting photos of uh, him and uh, David Broxton starting out. Uh, right the way through to what Arden does today, and it was fascinating to hear about what he actually does. What is Peter Lord's job? What does he do? Mm-hmm. 
it sounds like the dream job, just going around the studio going, yes, good, carry on, <laughs> to, to all these wonderful creatives. And then having the opportunity to be creative himself and try new things out, like the Morph Kickstarter, mm-hmm. a character which he is very clearly attached to. And one of the, one of the best things about Bathfashir was that he always had a morph in his hand. And while he did his talk, he was making a morph, um, which was great because while he was making the morph, he stopped talking and then looked into the audience and went, has anybody got a knife? Because <laughs> he wanted to make, <laughs> to, to, to complete the morph uh, <laughs> figure, which was quite an odd sight to see somebody rushing to the stage with a knife, brandishing a knife to, to the, that year's star guest. But... <laughs> You do have to sort of question the mentality of someone who pockets a knife for the Peter Lord talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is Bradford, Ben. You know. <laughs> you know, you need to have your wits about you. Yeah, everyone just stumbling over themselves as they all rush the stage. But he was he would go he was going around the entire festival. And so I went into the projection room one day and, and Peter Lord's there taking pictures of Morph, pressing on all the buttons and you know, because you follow Peter Lord on Twitter. Every day is a new picture of Morph doing something. Mm-hmm. You know, Morph is his sketch, his kind of signature character, that it, and, and he just adores the character and pops in uh, in whatever situation he he likes to do. But that is the good thing about an animation festival that people do get the recognition as creatives to as to what they've created, and you know they can bask in that kind of uh, well deserved uh, kind of glory. It's quite incredible how that character's just stuck around you know when you watch the i mean it, there was that sort of spate of heavy morph merchandising a couple of years ago that perhaps was the indicator that uh, there was still audience interest and and why the kickstarter was successful but uh watching the actual episodes that they've produced it's like wow this really does feel the same yeah like it's it's it feels like hearing from an old friend like they're not trying i mean they in small respects it's it's more modern it's more defined obviously and some of the the subject matter is a, is more sort of up to date but it's not that kind of like trying desperately to be up to date yeah like it, it it retains its sort of quaintness you know it doesn't look odd that morph is interacting with a phone or taking selfies and stuff because he's still on the desk he's still interacting with with stuff that you can be found uh, found objects you know all these kind of pockets and things that you can take out your pockets and stuff just it seems natural as you say yeah I think to a certain extent, it it be, it seems less natural to not incorporate a certain level of modern technology and and stuff that people will that is now part of like everyday life. Yeah, you know, because that's what really it seems sort of dates like older shows and things like that. And I think that it's a little off topic, but I've been recently rewatching very very old episodes of the X Files, and I'm just sitting there going, if he just had a f- Twitter account. <laughs> or an Instagram. Yeah. Like so many times when he's like in the room with the alien carcasses and everything, you'd be like, fing A, click, upload, <laughs> do a vine. Yeah. But that's like, I mean, apart from like the hairstyles, that's what really kind of dates it. No one is on their Facebook or like taking advantage of the, the absolute glut of technology that absolutely enables communication whenever anyone's in a jam. And this extends to any show, any show with a sort of element of peril or, you know, need for conflict resolution or, like, if someone gets lost, well, they can just fire up their phone. Nowadays, you'd have to write in that, you know, they don't get a a GPS signal or something like that. The one line, just to discount the fact that they've got a phone that could solve this problem, Mm. you know, that they had, like, the future in the pocket. (laughs) 
And yet, it's I don't know why, but for some reason, it's perfectly organic to see something like Morph with a phone. And yet, if I see Bart and Milhouse with their iPads, yeah, that feels sort of cloying and desperate. The difference, I, I believe, the difference is that Morph is such a basic character. Morph is is just basically slapstick. That's what, that's what, that's that's what he is. Is is um, just a standard figure. He is what what Charlie Chaplin's Tramp was, but only with with extra with the power of animation to to morph in and out of different shapes or into the walls or anything like that. Uh, it's anything to get a laugh, and is and so if he can do stuff like that, you really kind of you're open to anything. You're open to anything when you watch a morph film because any scenario will work. You know, he's he's just a a, a platform for ideas. And it's done very well. Whereas Bart and Milhouse and, you know, them those characters have evolved throughout the years and, and changed so, so, so many ways uh, from what they originally were. I think evolved is the wrong word. Evolved suggests progression. Yeah, yeah. I think devolved is... Pro- it's it's more not very. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's become very, very broad and very paint-by-numbers. There was a nice little, um, on one of those onion-type sites... You know, because of all these Simpsons crossovers. Yeah. And uh, like the proposal for the latest Simpsons crossover, the Simpsons meet the older good Simpsons. <laughs> and they like splice like a still from one of the new ones with like a classic moment from like the old days. Yeah. I uh, remember sort of Al Jean, someone tweeted that to him. <laughs> he made some comment that was quite sad. Yeah. But, like how he was having a good day until he saw that. Yeah. Yeah. That was very cruel, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I think on some level, he kind of has to acknowledge that a point is being made there, a quite valid point. Yeah. I, out of the same morbid curiosity that I watched the um, first five, ten minutes or so of the Simpsons Family Guy crossover. Okay. Which ultimately I felt didn't really work, but a lot of people disagree. But I did watch the start of the Futurama crossover and ended up watching the whole thing. Really? What what did you think to that? I think when you just kind as what I've sort of done, I've sort of realized that The Simpsons now has no canonical value. Yeah. Back in the day, they were kind of loose with their continuity and their sense of reality, but it did all hold together in a certain way. Like if a character died in a Halloween episode, then you'd see them again. But for the rest of the year, if they died, they were dead. Sure. And now it seems like. It subscribes more to that sort of family guy concept of loose continuity. You know, characters can die and and come back to life. You know, there was one episode where, I guess it was quite recent, maybe a year or so ago, where the whole, like, expositional setup is that Homer keeps dying and they keep cloning him back to life. Right. It isn't ever actually framed in any kind of, like, fantasy storyline. It's, like, presented as just sort of part of the... As far as I'm aware, I didn't watch so, the whole what, thing. What, what, but when was this? About a year, two years ago. Really? And I think eventually it goes into like the future. Right. And that was the other thing, is like the future episodes have absolutely no consistency because now I think we're past, way past when the first future episode would have been. Oh, yeah, Lisa's wedding was 2010. That's oh, the, yeah, yeah. The actual, that, yeah. The, yeah, you see the actual frame grab of the wedding invite, and it's like 2010, which... You know, back in 1998, we've been... <laughs> Ages away. Yeah. Oh, my God, we'll all be flying in jetpacks then. And, you know, but, yeah, that's, uh, that's the way it goes. It is interesting that the Simpsons Futurama crossover, and this is something that I always kind of 
to help me get over it, Ben, to help me understand and to, to accept that this sort of continu- that the continuity has been bashed. To me, if Kang and Kodos appear in an episode, then it's not canon. Okay. And, and that gets fine for me. And right at the end of the Simpsons Futurama episode, when I was thinking, well, this is bullshit. Why the God, the time machine, the Simpsons, they're in a different universe. And then Kang and Kodos turned up at the end and I was like, all oh, right, okay, so, you know, it's a Halloween episode. It's, you know, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. That, that got me through it, Ben. That got me through it. This has come up a few times, that sort of nature of, what what counts and what doesn't count in the story? I think that past like year twenty, it can all for you know it all is up in the air. <laughs> yeah. for me. But I again, so I have no real, like I say, I don't consider it the same show. But just purely on a gag level and a writing level, I found nothing bad about it. It seemed to feel more like Futurama than The Simpsons. The Simpsons Family Guy crossover was forty five minutes long, maybe an hour. Long. I can't remember how long it was. I would much rather have seen Futurama and The Simpsons take that time to craft a better episode. You know, because I think that to underuse somebody as pivotal to the kind of Futurama universe as Fry is a little kind of uh, a waste, shall we say. Yeah, I just, I I can't say I I would have watched it from that perspective at all. Yeah. Because I was fond of Futurama, certainly, but I don't think I had... Again, I, I think because I was more of a casual fan of Futurama, its flaws were never as visible to me. There are people who would decry episodes from the newer seasons of Futurama um, as having completely lost it, but that wasn't sort of visible to me. To a certain extent, while I kind of... I, I probably find something like a Family Guy or one of those Seth shows generally more watchable than The Simpsons because there's no bar of expectation. Nothing's kind of spoiled me for it. Sure. So if you're like waiting for a show you actually want to watch to come on and then Family Guy's on for 10 minutes, yeah, f*** it, I'll put it on. And usually something will happen that will make me chuckle. Some of them I, some of them I find can be woefully unfunny. You'd think that there'd be more sort of quality control. The joke isn't that the jokes are bad, they're just bad jokes. Yeah. I think there was an era where they were trying very hard to be shocking, and as soon as you try, then you lose the edge. It's immediate. There was one one I saw, I don't know at what point this would have come in the Family Guy run, but the, the joke was literally that they had had another child and he had, I think, smothered it to death by accident. Right. Or, or, or shaken it to death. Yeah. And uh, But there was no punchline or subversion or comment. It was just that, you know, it was a flashback to a time in their lives when they were very distraught. Yeah, I think the the punchline was I, I I just wanted to make the baby stop crying. It kind of worked. Like that was the joke. It wasn't even offensive. It was just very lazy. Like that. It reminded me of the kind of jokes you make with your mates when you're about twelve. Yeah, you know, one of my favorite old Family Guy jokes when I was about fourteen, fifteen. I think the punchline was there's no need to kill a stripper. A stripper's already dead inside. And me at 14 thought that was brilliant, witty, clever. I'm not, I'm not f***ing around. I thought that was a really clever joke. Yeah. And at the time, there wasn't much out on TV that would say stuff like that. Yeah. Maybe South Park, but they wouldn't put it in that way. Because obviously it's not a good point. It's not a clever thing to say. But the fact that it was being delivered in this kind of almost infomercial 
uh, or, you know, public uh, awareness announcement kind of thing that was such a subversion in 1999 or whenever. <laughs> but yeah, in some respects, they never kind of grew out of that. And I think that they never really evolved or devolved. They kind of stayed on the same, largely the same sort of plane. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Simpsons and, and Futurama and other shows that had more of a sort of sophistication to them, there was more of a kind of, I don't know, identifiable peaks and valleys. So you went, were you, did you at least find the Futurama Simpsons episode funny or? Yeah, I mean, it was more, it was more, maybe perhaps more, they were both easy enough to watch. Let's put it that way. They're both easy enough to watch. I, I enjoyed them. I can't for the life of me recall a joke. I can't for the life of me uh, say that I, I was creased laughing like I have been in the past with the Simpsons and Futurama. I also can't say that any of the shows involved were taken down a notch or raised up by involvement with one another. In a way, it was kind of like a weak punchline to the cartoon wars that's been going on since The Simpsons, sorry, South Park took yeah. the mickey out of Family Guy all those years ago. And this kind of cartoon wars, oh my God, they hate each other. And it just seemed like a sort of wet kind of, we don't, we don't really fear mm. each other. We all get on, really. You know, luckily South Park kind of took us, hasn't taken a step into that or anything. Yeah. No, they've really dug their heels in, and good for them. <laughs> I'm serious, because yeah. I think that, that that's kind of... I was listening to an interview with uh, just sort of random sort of coincidence. The guy um, was interviewing the woman who plays Lois, who was in a, another show at the moment. I think it's a live-action show, but uh, he wanted to talk about like Family Guy and the sort of the crossover and stuff like that. And she was sort of talking about like how the cast when South Park, you know, ripped into family guy were absolutely overjoyed. Yeah. I'm not sure if that would have necessarily extended to the creators because they were pretty ruthless and astute in their assessment of the laziness of the writing of family (laughs) guy. But at the same time, and this weirdly wasn't picked up on nearly enough would absolutely give it to themselves as well. Yeah. Like they would, they would refer to their own sort of impulse to, Ward that kind of message-driven script writing. Yeah, there's an authenticity to the whole uh, the way South Park puts itself across. Whereas when you see Family Guy and The Simpsons meeting, you know you kind of get that man. This is too easy. It seems like South Park wouldn't do something too easy. And I will say that this current season of South Park, I've been quite fond of. It's quite been quite divisive, I think, as as any sort of season. I think past the sort of five or six year mark of any show will be. Yeah, because people then have their version of what they think the show is all about in their head. Um, so for me, quite a few seasons of late have been quite unsatisfying, but to others, I've really liked them. But this one has really been quite good, quite on form to me. A couple of patchy episodes, but one was quite a nice little dig at The Simpsons about that um, the uh, The Simpsons app. Oh right, yeah, which, tapped out. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, it was a and it's a very interesting sort of look at. Um, I saw that, that one. Culture. I saw that one, yeah. Um, Freemium isn't free. That was the name of the episode, wasn't it? Very possibly. With the Canadian devil. Yes. <laughs> the Canadian devil one. Is what yeah. And when they're not sort of making little sort of points about things. Because the speech in that one about dopamine yeah. that the devil gives, what a wonderful scene. <laughs> that felt really, like to me, classic South Park. I mean, but like I say, to other people, probably not classic South Park at all. But like... It just being able to sort of really convey a point in this sort of silly way. Yeah. And then some episodes have just been kind of like silly. Like the Oculus Rift one is just like batshit. 
uh, what was the most recent one? It was one I, I didn't really get as much. It was about Magic the Gathering. Yeah. But it had some funny lines in it, but I kind of feel like if I got the, that game a bit more, I would have liked it more. But yeah, that's it's nice to kind of see. I think what I've actually picked up on is a sense of timing and pacing and the structure of the comedy has returned that I was fond of, mm-hmm. that was sort of present in sort of older episodes. It seems that things really slowed down the last few years and they've kind of kicked up the pace a bit. So let's let's turn that round. We're here talking about The Simpsons and how their their characters have kind of been pulled and stretched completely out of shape into something which doesn't really fit anymore. Whereas we've just talked about South Park, which has done any possible kind of insult or 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 it's been as funny as it has been sad. It's been it, the characters have seemingly stretched out as far, if not further, than the Simpsons characters, and yet they still retain a kind of comedy base like Morph. Completely different, completely different ends of the comedy spectrum. But what is it that keeps them fresh? Yeah, and I think ultimately that the the freshness is in something like South Park comes more from adaptation. Yeah. Whether or not that's successful all the time. It's it's certainly essential. And by that token, if you go back and watch the first episode of South Park, which I did not that long ago, having not seen it for many, many years, it's very fresh because it remains like nothing that had ever been put on television. Yeah. Including current South Park. Yeah. Like that first episode, the feel of it, the vibe of it, the the craziness of it is quite unique and individual. It lost a lot of the appeal because it was just on all the damn time for the first few years. It was just one of those bits of television that I just couldn't watch after a certain point. Yeah. But having not watched it for probably at least a decade and seeing it again, it's like, wow, I remember what it was about this mm-hmm. that made it feel so unique and, and clever and at the same time, you know, exciting. Like, oh, well, this this has potential for something. And uh, it certainly panned out, but it's become a very, very different beast. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think by not sort of producing Morph regularly, that kind of growth of a character hasn't really happened. He hasn't, his personality hasn't changed. His personality hasn't shifted. Yeah. Because it's been, it's been about sort of, you know, replicating what it is the character was about in that snapshot of time, you know, from decades ago. But then if it were to carry on, it would develop. Mm. It would become something more, you know. Uh. You think of the the chasmic disparity between the the Cartman of season one to the Cartman of today. Yeah. In the first few episodes, he's barely even a human being. Yeah. Like, hey, you guys, seriously, I hate rainbows. And now you cut to now, it's like, well, Cal, the protocols of Zion dictates, what the f***? How do you go from point A to that? Yeah. 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 (laughs) That's an evolution. That's that's an evolution, yeah. but the boat. Or maybe he just couldn't be f- to do the voice. <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Have you have you heard like South Park? Just their actual voices when they're doing the characters. Yeah, yeah. They just you slow it down like the tiny bit. Is it just his voice slightly affected? Yeah. It's a good cheat. I've used it myself. I have to say. Yeah, that easy. The uh, the thing they did with the morph voice. Did you see that video? No. Is it Merlin Crossingham that does the voice for him now or something? Yeah, that's a good one to to have a look at. Yeah. Because a lot of morph and South Park connections. Yeah. You wouldn't have thought so. Well, here it is. We've, we've uncovered it. <laughs> That's a PhD for somebody. It's a similar sort of approach of, yeah, speeding up the kind of nonsense speak. But it's interesting how it's done. I won't... I'll, if you haven't seen it, 
Stephen and the squiggly listening audience by extension, check it out because there's a little sort of um, twist isn't the word, but their approach to, to doing the dialogue and the lip sync is, is interesting. Ah. Uh, it's not what I thought it would be. Is it anything like the clangers? Because I've got, and I will, I will state on record, the best art of book. It's the art of small films. It's about Bagpuss and the clangers and things like that. And it's got mm. like pictures of the original clangers script. So it's actually scripted. So like, you know, the father clanger says, oh, blast it. And so they have to interpret that in whistling, you know, uh-huh. so that sort of, you know, to, for all those that didn't know what a whistle was, that was a little example there. Uh, I'm sure they're very grateful. Yeah. I'm sure you could put an effect on that, make it sound like the clangers ones. I think something like the clangers was certainly had a role to play in the, in terms of influence. Because Peter Law did a thing in Bristol not that long ago of, uh, it was kind of like a desert island type, yeah, like favorite moments of animation. Included amongst them, he put in an old Clangers episode, and you do see there is a, a wonderful sort of comedy of the sublimely ridiculous. Yes, in the Clangers, yeah. the nuts. And I, I was watching this and going, "Well, you think of how people talk about Adventure Time and how like crazy it is." Now this is easily like on the same par, just in terms of the the free thinking behind the stories you know and the fun that they have with it you know i think like that's down to the and, and this book illustrates that point perfectly is down to the commissioning process back then it was a case of yeah uh can you gonna make make us an animated film yeah 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 how long is it gonna take 18 months right okay we'll schedule in for 18 months what are you gonna make uh, bat moon mice <laughs> nice one see you in 18 months there was no kind of uh insistence on interfering on every single little level or anything like that uh which is something that that's happened with this series of morph shorts funnily enough because mm. kickstarter has been able to provide that kind of freedom of expression for the creator you know so it's all kind of you know it's always coming back to the creator which is very interesting to see have you read uh seeing things is that the uh all the postgate biography yeah i've not read it yet no i, I think you'd really enjoy it yeah yeah, I think it goes from what you just sort of said about the areas that this other book goes into. Mm. It's obviously a lot more sort of personal to himself, but just kind of the way his life sort of went and uh, how his kind of health did. Well, I won't go into the book, but I would recommend it to yourself and anyone who was a fan of uh, the small films oeuvre. Well, here's the, here's the thing is I wasn't a massive fan of the Clangers or Bagpuss and stuff when it was out. I mean, by the time we were kids, it was all Thomas the Tank Engine and Postman Pat. You know, it was more... Um, either wood than either the engine, you know. So it, it's um, that's some good Ivor association. Oh yes, I'm I'm on it with the Ivors. You... <laughs> uh, um, but this is what working on an animation blog does to your brains, kids. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I'm I'm not the the biggest fan of 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 the work of small films, but I appreciate it like like I wouldn't do if I was in any other kind of industry. It's very telling then that the book is. So satisfying. Absolutely. They've done a good job of it, if you weren't even a fan of the show. They've done an amazing job. Yeah. Excellent. It's back to that kind of... Um, uh, one of the things which I think makes more for any kind of stop motion uh, appealing is the kind of tangible quality of of, of, of seeing something like Morph or like a, a clangor or like anything that you can just kind of envisage as being real or, or, or cl- one, one step closer to reality or something that you can actually create yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you listen closely to this interview, you might hear the sort of squelching of plasticine 
as Peter Lord makes a morph while he's been interviewed by me at the Bradford Animation Festival this year. I'm here at the Bradford Animation Festival, 2014. Mm-hmm. You're returning, I think, uh, 2006. Yes, 2006, yeah, it's a long time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. here with uh, Morph. This year? Mm. Yes. I'm, I'm just going to like present the state of the studio generally, because I think it's quite interesting. I think it's interesting to other people in the business, you know, like what, what shape is a studio, how does it work? Apart from the work inside it, how does the organism work, you know? And Morph is like a new part of that organism, a new thing. I mean, he's very old, but um, the Kickstarter campaign was, is a new one on me, so that was that's interesting. Yeah, excellent. Well, maybe you could tell us a little about a bit about the organism, about Ardman as a yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, the sort of the the, uh, the reality is that these days we have like um, five legs on which we stand totter around and that's and that's feature films TV series TV commercials all the online stuff digital stuff and um, rights marketing and licensing and selling all of the above and so all those five areas they also sort of take it in turns to be more important more or less important you know so it's, it's some, I think for me I think I think the uh, this was never never exactly calculated, you know, nothing's calculated, but in practice it, it gives you a kind of flexibility that way, you know, as the as the business ebbs and flows and opportunities come and go, you can respond to them. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. What about yourself as a, an executive producer and a producer yeah. on features, yes. uh, shorts, web things, having to manage and keep the admin kind of spirit throughout the whole thing, how does that work? I'm not um, the world's most proactive Producer or, or, or exec producer. I'm just. I'm not. It's just not not my temperament. I mean, really, I'm happiest directing, but that happens sometimes. Sometimes not. So in between times, it won't sound like much actually. Often it's just um, it's the way you react with people, the time you spend with people, the questions you ask, the reactions you give. It's often fairly invisible, tacit support for other projects. You know. Um, I'm, I'm free to admit that lots of things happen at Ardman that I don't know anything about at all. But that's because I'm very, very confident in somebody else to look after it. That's why. It's not I don't care. Yeah. I, I do care. I do care very much. But I, I have such confidence in the rest of the team that I know that a project can be developed and can be started and you know, more or less finished. It doesn't need anything from me. And yet, even so, I hope, I like to think that being there counts for something even for those projects that you're not involved in, funnily enough, you know. Um, take a thing like the Shaun the Sheep movie, which we've just finished. That there is quite involved. Obviously, right at the start, when the idea is, is flying around, I'm giving notes on the idea, but that's a, that's a creative role, that's a kind of creative director. So you give notes on the script, you talk to the writers, you talk to the directors, you're in lots lots of meetings. Um, but then the production runs pretty well without me, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's meant to, it should do. You know? and, and you come in a couple of times, hopefully to be supportive and constructive. And sometimes there might be, you, know, you get little, you get dips in confidence and you get crises and stuff like that. And sometimes you step in to be, to make a choice, you know, just, just one choice maybe, or make a decision, speak for the studio, because sometimes you have to, you know. Um, I'm a great believer in filmmakers. I mean, that's 
that's the most important thing in our philosophy really is to trust the filmmaker is what is absolutely what we've always done but still sometimes you do have to um, speak for the studio mm-hmm. uh, what you know, that might mean do you think that's a kind of a key to Ardman's success is not having to do everything I mean uh, you, yourself and, and David Sprox mm. have very clearly defined roles and in the early in the early days I'm sure you both animated mm. you both as, as, as creative one another yeah. and then there was a split and, and David handled um, the more administrative yes, or, the, or you know the business side, the business side yeah, operation uh, yeah well, in the company yeah yeah and I stopped doing that yeah yeah that was fine that was good yeah the last thing I I'm good to talk about the business, you know. If there's a meeting in Bristol, like occasionally, you know, you know, Bristol Southwest Entrepreneurs Breakfast, you know, I run a mile because I'm not interested in that at all. I really am not, and I'm not, I'm not good at it. Talking badly with other businessmen doesn't interest me, frankly, at all. But it happens. Um, Dave's very good at it, which is like a good thing. I mean, the real, the real thing. Surely, we, you know, we're quite a big company now, and the only way it works is to to get good people in that you trust. That's the only way it will work, you know. So um, then that being done, you know, you just then, then you end up making a few, like, very, very high-level decisions and leaving a ton of stuff to those that could do it much better than you can. I mean, proper producers... Because I'm, I'm not a proper... I do, I do a bit of the producer's job. I do the, um, I do the kind of people side of it. But when I see a producer at work, hear them at work, I mean, all of the way they think, the, organ, the organisation of their brains, you know, and, that, and so I just stand back and say, over to you guys, you, you do that. So, so you've got the fun job then, between yourself and David. That's the theory. <laughs> That's my plan. Excellent. Um, well, we're in the Media Museum and, and a few feet away from us is Morph. Yeah. Uh, in, 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 a, in the museum cabinet. It's yeah. such a part of culture. Yeah. He, he's, uh, he's returned, he's back through, yeah. through Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, what made you want to bring him back? Was it just a, a case of wanting to have fun with this character again? It was actually. It was actually. Quite, it was pretty sort of um, simple and um, optimistic approach. Really, we did a pilot for a kids show. It was barely animation at all. It was a kids uh, educational science program. One of the guys at work is is a natural presenter. He's very good. On camera, so he sort of devised this show, and we decided that we would include Morph in it. This is Morph, who hadn't really been on TV much for the past decade, I guess, and so we wanted an animated element, and we kind of thought, oh, that worked really well with Tony Hart, so now it can work well with Ricky, the presenter. So Ricky did his stuff, and Morph appeared for a minute, ninety seconds, or something, into cut. And basically, the BBC didn't buy the programme, but you end up showing it to lots of people. Everyone said, oh, we love Morph. So that's what, I just heard a lot of that. I heard a lot of, oh, we love Morph. And, and the reason for that, of course, is interesting, because the people that are now TV executives and so on were 10, or whatever, whatever the perfect age was, when Morph was on TV. So therefore they feel, you know, sentimental, nostalgic, you know, about it. But there is something about him which is very, very attractive. I now realise, apart from the fact he's good fun, that shape and the voice is very, it, it, it just gets to people, I, I, I observe. So that reminder from the TV executives, oh yes, of course, people do really like him, was the spur. 
And I've always had this very um, fond memory of the, to me, the golden era when we did these short sequences which were like a minute long or 90 seconds. It's, it's a very sort of a forgiving time scale because you don't have to go too far into, you know, psychology and stuff like that. You know, you just, it's really, it's gag-based. You think of a setup, you think of a situation, and then you think of all the fun you could have with that, and then you, you just try and craft it into a decent story. And that's a very lovely way of working because it's very free, you know. It's, it's, it's easy, it's fun, it's free. A lot of what we do at Art Man, it gets very bogged down in process. This is not just art, man. It's just, it's just being, you know, professional company. You know, you get bogged down in storyboarding things and um, and checking things with other people and getting signed off from other people and this kind of thing. And I, in my remembered golden era, you could just kind of sit down with the modeling clay at the table and um, and do it. You know, you could. Make, you could make something up. I mean, it, if you did, it wouldn't be terribly good because it, it, you have to plan ahead. But you could literally sit down and make up a morph sequence. So, so that lightness of touch, that informality uh, was very appealing. And so that's how we... So that's what I wanted to do. And then, uh, then we talked to the, to the, you know, within the company. Of course, it, it's not as simple as that anymore for a variety of reasons. It was like a mini production. It was still very likely to speak compared to most productions, but still it had, you know, it did have, it did have um, storyboards. Of course, it had animatics. It had digital cleanup, which is which is a great thing, a great thing with Morph, because Morph has no skeleton inside him. He is just a lump of modeling clay, so he falls over a lot. So he can't pick up anything. He can't pick. He can't hold anything out at arm's length because there's just no strength in in the plasticine. So, we can, so therefore, if he holds up a cake, he's always, he's always eating cakes, right? So if he gets a cake out, mmm, that looks good, he can't hold it up. So for this series, you can, st- you can stick a rig in, you know, and then paint it out, you know, d- digital cleanup. There, there was lots of that, which is good, which is great. So anyway, so it, it, was, it was more complicated than, than my dream. Uh, and we, we decided we'd, we'd, we'd go the Kickstarter route. And I was, I was anxious about it. Me and Dave Sproxton, the, the older members of the team, because we didn't know, didn't know Kickstarter really, didn't know what it felt like, you know. We were saying, oh, can we do that? Can I ask for money? You know, we're, we said, isn't everyone going to say, you guys are rich, you don't need our money? Uh, and the younger members of the team said, no, no, that's not how Kickstarter works. You know, people want to be involved. That's what they want to do. So we did it, and I was like, I was so happy with it. It's just not uh, the money. I was happy with the money because it, it it helped enormously. I was happy with just the 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 relationship with the audience, which was unique, you know, and great. It's just spectacular. I loved it because you know you can make you can make a, a blooming feature film that costs you know forty million dollars or something, and you don't meet your audience at all in a funny way you know you're, they're out there in the theatre yes god bless them but you don't kind of meet them uh, and you don't get the involvement And with, but with the Kickstarter thing you get this direct involvement with a couple of thousand people that wanted to get behind it you know you could you, you communicate on you know internet you, you can you can tweet with them and that kind of thing and um, then you can get their ideas in which we did for episodes so it's all I, I loved all that 
That's great. Mm. I was just asked about a nice interaction between the audience yeah. and, and, uh, and, and the production and, and getting them to submit ideas for the script mm. and, yeah. and things like that. But The ideas was very interesting because writing a wall script is very difficult, actually. Even, maybe because it's short, you know, having said it earlier, it was easy. It's still, you've got to get the right shape, you know, um, and it's got to work in mind. You can't use any words and so on. So it's quite difficult. But having the, the sort of core idea is quite simple. For example, I'll tell you one that we didn't use actually in the end. It was somebody said, I had more than one person said, why not do like a, a jousting, like knights, knights in armour jousting. And we thought, oh yeah, that'd be fun. Because I always like the stories where the audience kind of knows the world and they have preconceptions, you know, that's, that then you can play on that. And so I thought, oh, that'll be fun. But in the end, we couldn't work out a good story from it. But we gave it quite a lot of thought. You know, we sat down for a couple of hours thinking we would, you know, uh, you know kick around judging for a long time, but didn't come, but couldn't come up with a nicely shaped story. Interesting. Yes. So, if animators are actors, mm. which is true, yeah, you probably put yourself down as a comedian because your roles that you play are maybe more comedic. Although yeah. in the past you've created films such as uh, Going Equipped and mm. uh, Babylon and, and films with yeah. with a kind of uh, very dramatic edge yeah. to them. Yeah, are you naturally drawn to comedy, or how does it work? Well, that's like? interesting. It's a very interesting question because that is very interesting because. I mean, because you're right, you know, absolutely actors, animators are actors, animators are performers, they, they act, you know. Um, but I wouldn't put myself down as a comedian anyway because I don't think I'm that funny, you know, and so, um, but a comic actor maybe, maybe that, a comic actor, yeah. Um, interesting question though, because I, you know, in the early days we did these, we did these films which were serious. What else can you say? I mean, they, their, their ambitions were serious, although there was almost always some humour in there, almost always. If I was to make a film again, if I was to make a, a film just for myself, art house film, which is now bloody hard to, to do in Britain, it's very, very hard to do that, but people do. If I was to, I think it would be funny. I think it would be funny. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting, but I think it would. Um, I think maybe I feel, perhaps I feel, if, it's, if you just want to get emotion from the audience, which, which we do, uh, and the emotion is kind of serious, that maybe uh, an actor would be just a more direct way of doing it. Just that, maybe, maybe. Oh, Willie is, is such an interesting example. It's such a clever film, such a good film, that one. Both serious and funny, you know, it's got, you know, it definitely makes you, it makes you smile and laugh. Uh, and it's very, very moving. Um, so that's, that's great, that's beautifully judged. You know, I wouldn't be smart enough. I wouldn't ever make a film like that. I wouldn't. But one of the reasons I love it so much is I think, where the hell did that come from? You know, when on earth did that idea come from? And I, because I have no idea, I find that delightful, you know, that's, that suits me fine. I don't, to not know, it suits me very well. I wouldn't do a film like that. I think I'd do a funny one, probably. And the reason why, it's to get a reaction. Because, you know, an audible, audible reaction, a clear audience reaction, you know, it, it's that, I think. And, um, of course, I'm just, oh, Willie gets that. But that's a really, 
clever film with tons of work in it. And I, I don't see myself making a film like that. I, I, I don't see myself ever... Like, it's hard to imagine ever having a year to make a film on my own in the garage. Although I do something... I just think about it. I might do. Yeah, but it's probably funny. Or, uh, yeah, yeah, or yeah, something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Would you return to it? Would you, if you... If you set time aside, would you actually return to that? If, if to to make a, another short, just for, yeah, for the sake. I think I would. I hope I would. I hope I would. Or would I be too busy lounging around the beach drinking wine? Yeah. <laughs> Taking pictures of morph and putting them on Twitter. That's the yeah, thing. that's good. I like that. I like doing that. That's fun. Oh, well, yeah, I like seeing them. I, I like doing yeah. that. Yeah, that's interesting. That you know, because that's what I like about that is it is so spontaneous as a thing to do. You know, like. Um, if I have him with me, and I think, oh, and I know that it's fun to put him in like with like landmarks, you know, that's that's obvious. I didn't take him to China, which was such a dumb move. I, I didn't take any clay to China with me, and I, I wish I had. Um, uh, but then, you, so you have an idea, and you can just do it. It's, it's kind of like yeah, it's kind of like doing a film, sort of super miniature, little sketch, a gag. You can do it. My, my, my finest hour was those squirrels. I was very happy with those squirrels. Do you see those ones? Yes. I was, yeah. I was sitting in my, I was sitting in my, um, at my desk, like this, you know, you know, look at the old computer. And out my window over there, there's this park. It's, you know, it's 50 minutes drive away. And I could sit and I, I suddenly remembered, I suddenly occurred to me how you could feed the squirrels. And I thought, I bet though, I know they're, they're very tame there. I bet they would take food from Morph and, sh- and sure enough they did. Although I felt like a complete imbecile because you're lying down on the path with peanuts and Morph feeling pretty self-conscious. <laughs> would you be returning to features yourself in terms of... Oh, that's a, that's a bigger question, isn't it? And I don't know the answer. I do not know the answer. It's really tricky because we've got at the moment five sort of potential projects, fe- feature film projects, and of those five, there's three that really appeal to me that I could direct, you know. But I have to confess that at my age, what I'm rather enjoying having a bit of freedom. And directing a feature film, you don't get any freedom. In fact, you're kind of a slave to it. Harsh word. But in the sense that when you're shooting, you just can't do what you want. If you want to do anything else, you can't do it. All you can do is shoot, you know. I mean, not every day. You get, you know, you get, I'll give you a couple of weeks holiday, you know, you get Christmas off. But you can't, spont- I couldn't come here, you know, spontaneously, which is kind of, I kind of did. I couldn't come to a, go to animation festival, you know. It's the best job in the world. I doubt it. It's a great, great job. I, I mean, I, I do actually, I genuinely love it. I love the people. It's great, you know, the team at Arvind is a great team to work for. So I love all that. But it's, it's, uh, the regime is kind of unforgiving and, and I'm, you know, I'm reaching a stage in my life when I want, I, I want to make films that also I'd like to just travel more and, like, and do, have a bit more fun. So I don't know what to do about that. I don't know what to do. I can just imagine myself getting drunk one night and saying, yeah, I'll do that one, yeah, I'll do the next one, and then, and then, and then regretting it for the next five years. Excellent. So what is next for yourself then? Uh, for me, it's a good question. Practically, I shall keep on working on these sort of five projects that I talked about. Um, and what I'm doing with it, it, it is an important job, um, is to make it possible for somebody else to make them. That's the way I'm thinking at the moment. Uh, trying to get a project in good enough shape 
that somebody else can take it on and make it their own. So that's a huge thing. That's my main business most of the time. You know, most of the year, that's what I'm doing. Feature films is such a, such a glacially slow business. You know, you know, it takes ages to get your, your idea finished. So I'm, do, I'm doing that glacially slow thing. We've got a couple of TV projects that I'm also very interested in creatively. But again, just my job is, is to set them up for someone else to knock down, really, you know, which is a funny job, but it's okay. That's, that's worth doing. So get the thing off the ground, find the team, assemble the team, and then hand it over to them. That's what you should be doing. Uh, I hope there might be some more morph action. I like, I'm very happy with that. And there's things like uh, uh, exhibitions being discussed, you know, um, which, I, which, again, I'm not going to curate the exhibition, but, but you know, I'd love to be involved in that because, I, because that's representing us to the outside world, the company as a whole, and that's exciting for me. Mm. Those are good. Ardena exhibitions are always good because, um, like you've got in front of you there, something tangible. Yes. Nice to see the that's the thing. Yeah, 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 yes, that's right. I mean, you know, much as I love Pixar, you know, beautiful the artwork is, there's nothing to touch. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing, you know, it's all just all on the screen, it's all flat. It's, be- it's beautiful, but it's flat, you know, and, and um, I care about the tangible things. Excellent. Oh, Peter Lord, thank you very much for talking okay. to me. That was Peter Lord uh, talking to me at this year's Bradford Animation Festival. Lovely to hear from the guy again. You can also read an interview with Peter Lord and Nick Park, uh, Ardman Animation's fellow director, of course, responsible for Wallace and Gromit and uh, uh, Shaun the Sheep, essentially, and Creature Comforts, the film that kind of put Ardman on the map. I think it was the first Oscar win. Uh, they're talking about the first uh, series of very, very prominent Channel 4 Ardman shorts, the Lip Sync series. This is the series that yielded shorts such as Ident by Richard Starzak and uh, Next by Barry Purvis and Peter Lord's War Story and Going Equipped and uh, Creature Comforts, like I said before. It's a lovely little chat and the first time we've had Nick Park on Squiggly. So that's a bit of a coup, a bit of a milestone, I dare say. So you can check that out at squiggly.com. So we've reached the end of our Squiggly podcast, very possibly the last podcast of 2014. I hope you're not uh, mad at us that we didn't do a Christmas play this year, but uh, there were many, many factors mainly that I couldn't be asked. (laughs) But hopefully you had fun all the same. And with the variety of guests, Ben, I'm sure people felt a kind of a, a seasonal kind of glow within their hearts. Exactly. We'd like to thank Mr. Glenn Keane. We'd like to thank Peter Lord, and we'd like to thank Pez. The Squiggly Podcast is presented by Steve Henderson and Ben Mitchell. It is produced and edited by Ben Mitchell, with music by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do, at Squiggly. You can also like us on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash squigglymagazine. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube series, Lightbox, which can be found on youtube.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. And for all the latest news reviews, interviews, videos, and everything else from the world of animation, visit squiggly.com. And to all a good night. We thought, we thought really for each other with...
we're all friends. We're friends. 